But the last time I checked, we don't have a whole lot of songs that feature the cowbell. I gotta have more cowbell, baby. And I'd be doing myself a disservice and every member of this band if I didn't perform the hell out of this. Guess what? I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. Make me a deal and make it good for me. I won't get full of myself, I can't afford to be here. This is small town music, this is big town music. He's ahead of his time, you know, but he can't use it. If only he could prove it. Well, tomorrow's just a song away, a song away. Uh, hey everybody, welcome to Rock Solid, the comedy podcast for all things music, both new and classic. I'm Pat Francis. And I'm Nate Trees. And Nate, you get to say your name because you've been here before. That's right. You were, you were, here, you were here for such a long period of time <laughs> that it feels like we recorded three episodes with you. Yeah, we, that, that, is that still the longest one you've ever done? <sighs> How long? It was it three? It ended up being th- over three and a half hours, I think. That, I think that is the longest one we've ever done. Well, it was a lot of material to get through. It is a lot of material. Yeah, look, I agree. I agree. When you, when, you cover, when you cover a band like Judas Priest and they have uh, you know, a big catalog. Yeah. And um, that's why I was, uh, I was nervous when one of your choices for tonight was Jethro Tull. <laughs> right. And I was like, oh, we're only going to be able to pick one song each if we do Jethro Tull. Right. Well, st- I, I would have done it, though. I was, yeah, I mean, I was, I was willing to do it, but then I thought... No, I'm, I, I, have, I have one I would definitely prefer to do. And that's what we're going to do. Going to do the uh, BOC. Mm. Yes. I just bit, bit the side of my mouth when I said that. BOC. Blue Oyster Cult. Well, they would love that, I'm sure. Because <laughs> it's blood. Yeah. Uh, but before we start, let's talk a little bit. You're in town. What are you in town for? Uh, just, it's my, it was my birthday on Wednesday, so I just decided to... Last time I was I was here, I, I really liked just visiting uh, Universal Studios, so I decided to just make a whole long weekend out of doing that. So, we, are, are you with friends or by yourself? I have some friends out here that I met a couple mm-hmm. of on a couple of the different days that I was here, but I, I flew by myself and I'm staying by myself, and it's great. All right. And did you uh, did you go to Universal Studios by yourself? Um, I met a friend at the City Walk, okay. but um, I ended up doing all the rides and stuff by myself. And you, I liked it that way, actually. You do? Okay, yeah. that's cool. I, I like doing stuff by myself sometimes, too. It's fun. And no, today, you don't have to worry about uh, someone else's uh, happiness. Well, right, Do exactly. whatever you want. It's none of that, what should we do next? You want to do this? You want to do that? You just go do whatever you want. Right. And I, I am someone who likes to take charge of situations like that, and I end up sometimes feeling like I'm coming across too strong or yeah. being like the bad guy. Someone's got to do that if there's like a group, but, you know, it's just... Yeah, you don't want to be the bad guy at, at a happy place. Sure. Did you ride that Harry Potter? Did you ride all the rides? Most of them, yeah. Did um, you do the big whatever? What's the big Harry Potter one called? Oh, what is that? Where one they strap called? you in? I, I I didn't do it, but I. It's because uh, it has like it says like ninety seven warnings on it. Right. If you have this or this or migraines or gout or the, you know it's like if right. you've you know if you've had gallbladder surgery recently. <laughs> I mean, it's a, Nate has had gallbladder surgery, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I can't do that one either. Did yeah. you do the little coaster? Yeah, I mean, I did. I did most of the the, the friendlier mm-hmm. ones for sure. Simpsons. Um, yeah, I love the Simpsons one. That's great. That one's a lot of fun. I, I went. I think the the last time I was, I did like a bunch of rides at Universal mm-hmm. was probably close to ten years ago when I went to the one in Florida, and they had just, I think, built the Simpsons ride down there, and uh, it was a lot of fun. So I want to make sure to do that again. It's uh, it's so weird because you're not, you're not high up. 
No. But it, and it's a cartoon. Right. But it feels like you're oh, yeah. high up. It's so weird. It really plays with your mind. Yeah, I, I do like that sort of the like 3D, like simulated yeah. aspect of it. That's a lot of fun for me. I don't think I could do it if it was live, live action, though. I think that would be freaking me out. Oh, yeah, for sure. But animated. Is, and, and then, you, and then you, I love when you get sucked in Maggie's mouth. Yeah, yeah. And then you get like wet from her spit. Yeah, that's it, it's that's, really weird. It's really a weird, uh, cool ride. I love it. It's super fun. I I I had just as much fun this time as last time, and I spent a lot more time doing all the different things too. Did you ride anything more than once? I no, I did go to the Waterworld stunt show like three times though in the last two days, just because that's so fun. And is the line short for that at this? Point. It was pretty short. Well, going on like a Friday afternoon yesterday, it was it was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so the line wasn't super long, but it was really long this afternoon. The Waterworld stunt show is better than the Waterworld movie. Oh, by far. <laughs> it's like, unbelievable. They've made their investment back like a million times over. No thanks to Kevin Costner. No, no. Um, I love when the jet skis, they come from underneath the water. Yeah. How do they do that? I have no idea. There's got to be like some trap door that they open and then the guy shoot. It must be, that must be scary to do. Oh, I'm sure it is. Um, what, uh, what, uh, what people in costume did you see? Did you see Homer? I did. Yeah. Did you see, uh, uh Sideshow Bob sometimes is out. I don't think I saw him. No, I saw, um, you know, the Blues Brothers are always around in there. Yeah. They're not too bad um, usually either. No, they're they pretty look, good. The, the Belushi always looks pretty great. Yeah. And they had a bunch of Men in Black, um, I presumably, I guess, because the, there's a new Men in Black movie coming oh, out. I could give a shit about Men in Black. <laughs> Seriously, I didn't. I barely liked the first one. Really? Oh well, then there's no. No, there's, there's no, no hope point. for me. I never saw the third one. I I was I was super uninterested in the third one because of how much I hated the second one, mm-hmm. um, and so I didn't see the third one when it came out. And then one of my friends was like, "No, I think it's actually pretty good." And I went mm-hmm. and saw it, and I thought it was fine. Okay, I didn't think it was great, but I thought it was fine. I I equate I like I like to see movies like uh, like that now and say oh you mean the new the new Men in Black which has I'm talking about the third one which has a uh, Deadshot Thanos and Two Face in it right <laughs> that's how you have to keep track of everything <laughs> like every every cele- every movie star has been in, every time I see someone a movie person I'm like they've been in a superhero movie mm-hmm. they've been in a superhero movie oh yeah I mean they're their own genre now so do you like the superhero movies oh I love them yeah. Did you see Endgame? Yeah, I just I, I just saw it again at the AMC at City Walk yesterday. This won't drop for a while, so okay. So I think we can talk Endgame if you want to talk about it a little. Okay, bit. Okay, sure. Yeah, let's get into it. What, what did you uh, did you like Infinity War? I did. Some people didn't, but I liked it a lot. I loved it. Mm-hmm. I saw. I've seen it like seven seven or eight times, front to top to bottom. Wow. Okay. I love it. Yeah, I've seen it like three or four times. I think. Did, what did you like better, Infinity War or Endgame? To be honest, I liked Infinity War a little bit better. Yeah, so did I. Um, people seem to be saying that the critical the critical consensus seems to be that Endgame is like way better than Infinity War. And I didn't it's really not. think so. Here's my problem. Well, I can say it now because again, this isn't going to drop for a while. Uh, ASAP Club, big spoilers coming. Here we go. First of all, Endgame they set up this Captain Marvel with their own movie. Yeah, she's in the trailer. Yeah, she's not even in this movie. I think they put it in the reshoots. I don't think she was in the original She's version at all. Barely in it. Well, and they even that end credit scene in her own movie leads you to believe that oh here she is. She's with. She's an Avenger. Right. No, she comes in, says what's going on. Okay, well I got to go patrol the galaxy, 
And now the problem with that is, at the end of the movie, big spoilers, people, big spoilers. At the end of the movie, when Thanos and all his minions come, I was sitting there like, who gives a fuck? Captain Marvel's going to be here in mm, three seconds. Right. Because you know she's coming back. Well, I mean, the thing is that fight with Thanos at the end of Infinity War was really climactic and, and it's great. And it's a way better end battle than Endgame's battle right. is. Because he doesn't have any of the stones. He's just got a sword that we've never seen yeah. used that is like indestructible yeah. for some reason. And um, it just didn't have... And then they like... Like they literally show Captain Marvel crashing through these ships and like destroying his entire armada. Yes. And then even though we've seen her do all of that, she can't like just totally wipe the floor with him. I she know. should be able to. She should be able to. So yeah. Otherwise, what's the sense? Yeah. I mean, I I did think it was really cool when he headbutted her and she just didn't react at all. That, yeah, that was, was cool. Like real cool. There's but... little cool moments. It's a oh, good. Yeah. It's good, but it's not great, and it's not as good as Infinity War. My other problem is they. They really gave us the short shrift on the Hulk in the last movie because he never, after the opening scene, he never comes out. So we're dealing with Banner. And now in this movie, Banner and the Hulk are like, it's like a smart Hulk, right? but he never hulks out. Well, so it's just like a big green banner and that pissed me off. Well, the thing is. I thought that I actually thought that is what they were going to do. I, and because, like he was going to stay like that. Yeah. But then when it was time to fight, he was going to. Well, no, I, what I thought was because it, there's a there's a famous one of my favorite um, like runs by mm-hmm. any uh, writer in comics was when Peter David, uh, who's my favorite comic book writer, was writing um, the Hulk in okay. the 80s and 90s. And he wrote for like 112 issues and did some really groundbreaking stuff. That's a lot of issues. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, and he was the first one who kind of came up with the idea that um, the Hulk is actually like a an alternate personality mm-hmm. that that Bruce Banner has, and that it existed before the gamma rays like affected him. Yeah, um, and that it was like his repressed uh, like childhood persona. Um, and so there was like this this kind of controversial issue where they figured out a way to merge all the different personalities into the body of the Hulk, but having Banner's mind. And that was the status quo for a long time. And they told some really interesting stories with that. So I thought that's what they were going to do. And I thought that the way that infinity war was going to sort of end was with him having to like have a conversation in his head with the Hulk and the Hulk was like scared because he got beaten by Thanos. He was like, we need to work together. And so a big climactic moment would be when the Hulk had Banner's intelligence, but they just sort of like drop you into that at the beginning of end game, which I I didn't like. Uh, my main problem was with Thor, though. Because... Hold on one second, though. I have to hold on. <laughs> nerd talk. You guys are nerds. Fair, right. fair. Had, 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 yeah, we had to do it. <laughs> yeah, my big problem is uh, big spoiler coming. Yeah, Thor's fat in this, right? And it's funny for about fifteen minutes. I, I really didn't, I mean, it, it, maybe it's just because I am a, uh, I'm like a big time stress eater, use eating as a coping mm-hmm. mechanism yeah. a lot. I just didn't like the fact that they played it off as a joke and that there's no, yeah. like the only moment where you see like there's a little bit of it's empathy. kind of like body shaming a little bit right, too. Exactly. It's weird. It's a weird thing. And, and you know, they, like the, when, when Banner comforts, he's the only guy who's like, hey, we went through all this stuff and you helped me out on, yeah. you know, on whatever that planet was, Sakaar, you helped me out on that planet and um, 
And so I'm going to help you out. But everybody else was like, oh, you're Ranger full of cheese whiz, you, you big Lebowski type. And they're like, you guys don't, like Tony went yeah. through PTSD just a few movies no, ago no. and he doesn't. He doesn't have any empathy for him. So and I didn't like that. Here's the other problem. You just, you're talking about all the jokes. Aren't, aren't they in like the most dire of situations here? And man, is it way too jokey. It's way too jokey. That's a good point. I don't mind if there's a few jokes for levity, but they're, they're joking the entire movie. And it's just, yeah. for me, I'm just like, um, I don't know, guys. It's not, it's pretty, it's pretty grim. You yeah. know, it's a pretty grim situation that you're dealing with. I feel like they are, they sort of have put themselves in a corner mm-hmm. because it's become sort of a, a, an ongoing joke that the DC movies, not, not so much now, but that the DC movies were like all grim, dark, yeah. with no lightness or humor. And so the Marvel people are like, okay, well, so we're, we're like the lighthearted, like fun, don't take it too seriously. It's mm-hmm. comic book type. And they're like leaning into that so much now yeah. that it's almost starting to undercut when there are supposed to be serious, good moments. And um, what was that? What, a couple other, oh, the opening scene is a, uh, is with uh is with uh what's Barton's first oh, name? Hawkeye. Yeah, Hawkeye. Clint. Clint. Mm-hmm. He's with his family on the farm, and he like turns for a second, and all of a sudden you see some ash go up, and then right. he turns, and then he can't find his family. And I'm right. like, would his whole family disappear? What are the the odd? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. There's five people. Are they all gonna? Di- I understand it's a movie, but I think it would have been cool if one of them would have still been there. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I mean, it is, I mean, it's, I'm a dad, you know, so I, I would, that would be horrific if all of a sudden right. everyone's just gone. What happened? But it was just so, it's so weird that the core Avengers didn't like, it was supposed to be random. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's weird that the math, I mean, obviously you, you want to say the math of 50% of all life means that 50% yeah. of everybody in each scene should go. And I know it doesn't yeah. necessarily work out yeah, that it doesn't way, work it's really, out yeah. it's hard for me to justify that. Yeah. Uh, where was Goose? Good point. Would, I would have loved to have seen Goose and Rocket together. True. Maybe Rocket's creepy. He's hitting on a cat. Oh, that would be <laughs> you know really I mean? funny. That would be funny. Yeah. Um, what other problems did I have? Oh, okay. All the heroes at the end, yeah. they get such short shrift. Right. Because all of a sudden they're there and then the movie's over. They re- really, they really, I felt like we should have seen them about 90, min- 90 minutes in, they all come back. Sure. And yeah. it was just like, because each one said like two lines. And it was like, like oh, that, yeah. that battle on Wakanda is so kick-ass. Yeah. And this battle at the end of this movie is just like, oh, it's over. All right. Yeah. I mean, there's a sense of like, we've, we've seen this. And I don't know, I don't know what else they, they would have done instead. But yeah. it, it just seems like having them fight Thanos and his army like all over again just was kind of like, not necessary, yeah. yep. you know. There, there had to be some other way. I don't know. I mean, maybe they could have more literally adapted some stuff from the original Infinity Gauntlet yeah. thing. I know the guy who who created all of that stuff. Actually, he finally mended his fences with Marvel, and he got a cameo in it. So I'm glad that worked out. And again, I, I like the movie a ton, but I was disappointed by it. Yeah, I mean, I just didn't. I just, I just didn't think there was a way. I was kind of prepared to hold on a second, Nate. <laughs> nerd talk. You guys are nerds. Now 
I'm assuming yeah. right now that the listeners are thinking, why didn't they talk about this before they started to record? <laughs> <laughs> True. I don't know why. Uh, so go ahead. I'll let you do your final thought on this. Sure. Okay. I brought it up, people. Yeah, that's right. I, I wasn't, I mean, he, he didn't know. He wasn't prepared know. for this. This wasn't in the pre-notes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so final thoughts. I'll just say I, I found it in emotionally satisfying mm-hmm. for the most part. There, yep. were, there were some things I liked, even loved about it, but for yep. the most part, I didn't think it was as strong of a movie as Infinity War. And I was excited that it was three hours long, but then about 90 minutes in, I was like, oh, th- this movie is really long. This yeah. is moving slow up top. Let's yeah. get to it. Yeah, it's just so clearly delineated between like the fun time heist mm-hmm. stuff and then like this climactic battle at the end. It just seems like two yeah. separate movies or something. And don't even get me started on time travel. I know they made fun of it in the movie so that you would like go with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it just doesn't, there's, it begs too many questions for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, oh, okay, they can do this and come back, but Tony's daughter is still around. I would think she'd be gone. And I would think that, you know what I mean? It seems like... Like they said, oh, don't, they, and they listed all these rules not to do. And then, you know, Cap sees himself and everyone, they break all the rules yeah. the whole way. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just, whenever time travel is used as like a plot in anything, I'm just like, whatever. Like, I can't get mad about you breaking the rules here because it's not like, yeah, it's, it's not like there's ever going to be a time travel movie that's going to no. make perfect sense. No. And I also, uh, I also, the plot device, I always groan at it when it's like, the time jump, and it just, you know, five years later, I was like... Oh, yeah, I didn't love that. Man. Didn't All love right. that. All right. We're nerds. Okay. <laughs> so here we go. Blue Oyster Cult. Where does Blue Oyster Cult uh, rank in your love of band? Your favorite bands? Are they in the top five? Um, probably not, to Well, then why honest. did you choose Blue Oyster Cult? Because I do really love them. Okay. Uh... It's just that it's, it's, it's crowded up there in the top five for me. Who's the top five if you could come up with the top five? Okay, Judas Priest for sure. Number one. Yeah, probably. Or, does it go, or do they go in and out of the top slot sometimes? Yeah, kind of, kind of back and forth because I love um, Fleetwood Mac a lot too. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I love Prince. Um, I really like Gentle Giant. They're kind of an obscure prog band that I've, I'm really I've heard with. of them. Don't they have an album cover that looks like a, a, an elf's face or a big face on the album? Yeah, that's the, the giant's face. Yeah, the, the it, giant. He's, of course he's a giant. He's not an elf. That would be Gentle Elf. <laughs> it folds out and it's like the giant holding. Yeah, it's a terrifying album cover. They don't have good album covers. They don't have, a, they don't have hardly any good ones. But yeah, I really like them. And then probably... Um, I, I hope you say Streisand. <laughs> Just something... <laughs> I mean, so far away from what you just said. I mean, it probably is like one of those um, like early 80s R&B groups like the Gap Band or oh, okay. somebody. Yeah. That's pretty eclectic top five. I'm an eclectic guy. I'm yeah. an interesting guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the cops are coming. Uh, so we got Blue Oyster Cult now. For me and Blue Oyster Cult, I was only really familiar with the hits. Right. I didn't listen. I've never heard except for... Fire of Unknown Origin is the only album that I that I know. Well, there's only one. Yeah, like top to bottom. Sure. That's the one I knew. So, but these other albums, I'd never heard top to bottom in my life. Some of these albums, I've never even heard any of these songs. Mm. So this was, okay. this was interesting. So when you said Blue Oyster Cult, I'm like, all right, it's time to get into Blue Oyster Cult. There we go. And I ordered, I have them in front of me. I've got... Uh, 
I ordered uh, like one, two. I get six CDs that I, I will give these away when this episode drops. If you're a Patreon supporter, $2 a month. Uh, and we'll have six winners here. Uh, four of these are from the Blue Oyster Cult Collection Remastered. And then the Spectres album, is, it just says Expanded Edition Remastered. And then Mirrors is a piece of uh, crap. That's the booby <laughs> prize, really. It's like, it, this is like the original CD release. Oh, yeah, it's they used to do Yeah, Columbia used to do this thing called Collector's Choice. And they make the album cover real small in the front. Yeah. Why would they do that? I don't know. It's just shit. I think the booklet, I think when I open this up, I think it's just blank inside. Yeah. Look at that. Holy crap. That's it's garbage. A, that's garbage. So that'll obviously be, uh, well, maybe, you, maybe I'll just, uh, you won't know, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Maybe that's how it'll be. So uh, let's go to this first album. Oh, before we do that, Pat, sure. real quickly here, I, I, do have some, <laughs> I do have some gifts. And who are these for? Well, one of these you can give to Murray if you want. Okay, but this, but primarily they are for you. Um, well, then Murray is, can suck it. <laughs> okay. Well, I just knew he was he was a, a, a Jethro Tull fan too, and this is Jethro Tull adjacent. Um, so this is uh, Steve Hackett's uh, five classic solo albums. There, that's an import that I found at a record store in wow. my hometown. Does he now? Does Steve Hackett sing? Uh, sort of. Um, he he. Of course, this is Steve Hackett, uh, best known for being in GTR. Yeah, best known for that. Right? Don't you think? I mean, Genesis. Maybe, maybe amongst some people, I guess. Wow, this is this is like uh this is cool. Yeah, he um his his wife at the time did all of his uh album cover illustrations. She's pretty good. Um, his his brother was in the band as like a flute player and a keyboardist. Buddy? Was that um, Buddy? <laughs> yep. <laughs> right. His much older brother was Buddy Hackett. Buddy Hackett. <laughs> Terrific. Uh um yeah, and so I, I just find that, I mean, it is, it is very, very proggy, and it is much more, um, you know, like, instrument-oriented, even though there are a lot of vocal performances. He, he sings on some of them, and then some of them he's got, um, there's, a couple, there's a couple of tracks on his second album that have um, Steve Walsh from Kansas doing the, the oh, lead vocals. That guy, and, that guy in, back in the day, he's a killer vocalist. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I'll, I'll load this in my iTunes. I'll, I'll pass this along to Murray so he can check that out. I know he'll like that. Well, he loves. He actually loves GTR. So, oh, perfect. What is this? Well, and this is also something that that uh, that Murray might like too. That's uh, Wild Turkey. That's Glenn Cornick, the original uh, Jethro Tull bass player. That's a band that he oh, uh, dear created. God. I only bought it because. Um, I was recently listening to uh, Bruce Dickinson's autobiography on uh, Audible, and he raves about this album. So, wow! And is it, is it worth the rave? Um, if you're like a real big fan of the first like two or three Jethro Tull albums, then I think you'll like it. It's maybe like a little bit too folky for my tastes, mm -hmm. but it is um, very accomplished playing. So, and does um, does Bruce Dickinson read his own autobiography? He surely does. Yes, I bet that's fun. It is. It was. He was. He did an amazing job. The uh, now this was released on Esoteric Records, which is a division of Cherry Red Records out of the UK. Mm -hmm. Go to the CherryRedRecords.com, people. They have tons of great stuff. It's a great record label. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, I have tons of their stuff. Yeah. Okay, great. Then the last time you brought me that mantis, is it mantis? Praying mantis. Praying mantis. Yeah. And that uh, and that's a that was a cool album cover. That was a fun album. Oh yeah, that's a great. That, they're one of my favorite um, sort of underrated '80s metal groups. How many albums do they have? Um, well, that was the only one they released before they broke up. <laughs> you probably uh, told me that before too, but I didn't remember. <laughs> well, then they, they, they reformed with, um, 
Bernie Shaw, the guy who's now the lead vocalist for Uriah Heep. Okay. Um, and they called themselves Stratus, but it was everybody like with with him just as the lead vocalist. And that album went nowhere. And then they reformed. They weirdly they're big in Japan, uh, and so there was some kind of like 15th anniversary Nawabum classic that Japanese promoters were doing, and so they got back together and had this new wave crowd. of British heavy metal. Yeah, that's right. All right. <laughs> and uh, I, I tried not to use that term, and then I just it's such into it. a weird term. <laughs> yeah, and, and like the metal bands don't like it, Mm-mm. so I try not to use it. But I, it's just easier, it saves time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so they were at this big like concert in Japan, and they had huge crowds in front of them. So they decided to get back together. So they've had like four or five albums since the '90s, and they just put out a new one last year, I think, and it's pretty good. All right, cool. Yeah, they're not. A, they're a pretty interesting band. But if they'd stayed together, because their first album went to the top twenty in the UK, and they had a hit single, so it was why break up, guys? It was literally just like squabbling over royalties and management. And Fantastic. So, yeah. So if they'd stayed <laughs> together, I think I think we would be talking about them in the same breath as like Def Leppard or Iron Maiden. I, I mean, really if the Ramones can keep it together to do sixteen <laughs> studio albums, exactly. come on, guys. I mean, if the band we're going to talk about tonight could for as long as they did. Well, the, the lineup stays pretty strong for a long, long time. It really does, yeah. All right, let's talk about it. Here we go. We're talking about Blue Oyster Cult, their first album. Drops in 19, where is it? 72. Yes. Self-titled, Blue Oyster Cult. Mm-hmm. January. That's when, I, I, th- I think back in the day, there was no rhyme or reason when to drop your album. It's just yeah. like, I don't know, January, we'll start the year with it. Yeah. And this is, uh, who produces? Let me look. I'm going to look. A lot of producers on this. Murray Krugman, mm-hmm. Sandy Perlman, David Lucas. Yes. I assume Sandy Perlman is a guy. Yes. He's, he was there. He's actually sort of like the, the, the Svengali, like the brainchild behind them. The sixth member. <laughs> He's the George Martin. Basically, because he was this like weirdo music critic and mm-hmm. poet and cultural anthropologist or whatever who uh, went to Stony Brook University in Long Island and he was roommates with Richard Meltzer who also ends up working with the band a lot and he just like sort of recruited these guys who were in the local scene and just started using them to like write music to his, his lyrical poems, ideas yeah. and stuff uh, and then he just ended up becoming their manager and then becoming their producer and Murray Krugman was a guy who worked for Columbia who sort of talked up uh, because apparently Columbia was really mad about the fact they wanted their version of Black Sabbath and they were really mad that they had missed out on getting Led Zeppelin signed Mm -hmm. too. And so he sort of told the early version of Blue Oyster Cult that if they could sort of Sabbath up their sound a little bit and present themselves as sort of like an American version of Sabbath, then he could get them signed to Columbia. So he was sort of their like in-house like producer and go-to guy with Columbia for a while. And wasn't there at one point, wasn't there a black and blue tour? Yes. When, when Sandy Perlman for a brief period of time, he was managing both of the bands uh, and he thought it would be a good idea to sort of feed into the fact that they were seen as being like two sides yeah. of the same coin. So he did uh, pull that off and he says he lost money on it and it didn't work out at all. But it's weird because uh, when you say it's the black and blue tour, it, to me, it tells me that black Sabbath is going on first. Usually they were. I think that was. I think really, they Black Sabbath opened for Blue Oyster Cult. I think. I think. Well, because it was the Dio version, which was not seen as being. Oh, as, I didn't know like, that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. This is in the early '80s. All right. And they both worked with Martin Birch, so maybe that had something That's to do right. with it too. All right. So this first album. Uh, let me tell you who the band members are. These are this is the these are the original members. I assume Eric Bloom, vocals, rhythm, guitar, keyboards. 
Albert Bouchard, mm-hmm. drums and vocals. Joe Bouchard, brother, mm-hmm. bass and vocals. So they're the rhythm section. Yep. So they can stay at home and practice. Basically. <laughs> uh, Alan Lanier. Mm-hmm. That's how I pronounce or Lanier. I say Lanier, but Lanier, I don't know. Rhythm guitar, keyboards. And then Donald Buckdarma Rogier. Am I saying his last name right? Yeah, I think it's I think it's Rozier or Rozier or something Rozier, like that. Rozier, lead guitar and vocals. Where'd Buck Dharma come from? Okay, so part of Sandy Perlman's just weirdness was <laughs> that he wanted all of them to have stage names. All right. So this guy, one guy chose Eric Bloom? No, no he, everybody <laughs> else except for Buck Dharma were like, this is stupid, I'm not doing this. Um, so uh, uh, I can't, I'm trying to remember them all. Uh, Alan Lanier's was Laverne for some reason. Um, Eric Bloom's was Jesse Python. Um, wow, this is bad. Al Bouchard's was uh, Prince Omega. Uh, and so Buck Dharma was the only one who was like, yeah, this is cool. Yeah, I'll I like on. it. I'll be Buck Dharma. Whatever. Yeah. Like the liner notes for... I gotta be honest. I don't know if it's because I've heard it all my life, but Buck Dharma seems like the best one of the lot. It is. It is for sure. So, all right. <laughs> yeah, that's... And, and he's he's gone by that more or less... You know, I, I think the rest of the band still call him, you know, Don, but that's, that's the only one that, I mean, I can't imagine like even just like kind of seriously trying to interview someone who went by Jesse Python or, you know, Prince Omega or whatever. If I'm waiting uh, after a show to get some autographs, how do I address Buck Dharma? Do I say, hey, Buck? Do I say Donald? What do I say? Uh, Excuse me, sir. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think, well, because I, I did have that done, and I, I just called him, you know, Buck, I think, and he was fine with it. So. Did you say, well, 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 if it isn't Buck Dharma? <laughs> no, you, you have their autographs? Yeah, on a couple of things, yeah. That's great. I've, yeah, I've seen them live a ton just because they come through, um, they play Dallas a lot for some reason. Did so. you see them when uh, Rudy Sarzo was playing bass with them? Yeah, that was the first show I saw with them in like 2011, okay. I think, or maybe 2012. It was like right before he left. And what was uh, what was Rudy's stage name? <laughs> I don't I don't know that. I think they just called him Mister Rudy Sarzo. I think it was Princess Tulip. I think it was Princess Tulip. Okay, so friend of the he, show. Here's what I got. Here's what I got. This is uh, I love this album cover. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is a really now they call these first three albums their is their black and white period or is their black red and white period? What is yeah, it? Yeah, they call them the black and white period because that because yeah. all the album covers are are like two tone like that. Yeah, there's a little red um, in this one. There's a little red in that one. Yeah, but the, these are great albums. Like, I love this. I love this first Blue Oyster Cult album cover. Yeah, the guy who did really that one cool. was uh, an architectural student who was like a college friend of I think Sandy Perlman's, and mm-hmm. he uh, just had a bunch of these like really crazy uh, drafts that he just did as like thought exercises, and uh, <laughs> and Sandy Perlman just picked him up and said, "Let's do this." And and he also that's also the same guy that came up with that symbol that's like their thing. The yeah, what is that? It's like a it's upside down crucifix, but like it has like it's like three exclamation points and then a, a question mark upside down. Yeah, it's supposed to be like it's sort of like a really stylized version of like um, the uh, alchemical symbol for lead. I think is what mm-hmm. what Sandy says. So there's a lot more heady stuff going on with this band uh, than than you would think. Oh yeah, they're like they're whether it's like pseudo intellectual or not. Like a lot of their lyrics and the concepts behind a lot of their early albums are very like esoteric and weird and sort of like you know very uh very very intellectual or i guess maybe pretentious some might might yeah 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 yeah. i might say that (laughs) well let's get into it uh we have both chosen two songs sure from every album 
And uh, I keep taking my glasses on and off because my eyes are driving me nuts today. But okay, so you're the guest, your topic. Nate's going first. What's your first song, Nate? Okay, so this one is uh, Cities on Flame with Rock and Roll. Uh, this has uh, got Al Bouchard on the lead vocals. Uh, and you can start that at about 20 seconds in. All right, let me cue this up. 20 seconds in, and here we go. My heart is black, and my lips are cold. with rock and roll. My ears will melt, and then my eyes. That does have a heavy sound, like a like a Black Sabbath, yeah. But not quite as um, not as much of a dirge though as like Black Sabbath can be sometimes, right? Yeah. Well, Al Bouchard did say that they they stole and just heavily modified the rift of uh, the Wizard, which is a song from Sabbath's first album, um, and he and. Uh, and uh, Buck Dharma wrote the music to that okay. and gave it a little bit more swing. I think um, Al Bouchard's a really interesting drummer, and I think he just kind of made it swing a little mm-hmm. bit more than the Sabbath song does. And Sandy Perlman just, like, I mean, he's a real weirdo, man. He, he, <laughs> he had this concept of rock and roll as some kind of, like, quasi-fascist, like, conquering force. And so it's all about, like, a war between different factions of rock, like I... guitars fighting each other and stuff like that. I it's would not have odd. wanted to be in a room with these five and, and Sandy when, no. they're, when they're discussing what's going to be happening. I'd have been like, guys, let's fucking play some music. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I also picked that song. Okay. So there you go. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It's, it's a great one. Yeah. And my other one, I can't even pronounce it. It's the first one on the album. Trans Maniacon MC. Yep. I don't even know what that means. I know I like this song. Oh, yeah, it's great. Maybe you can just explain it to me after we hear a little bit of trans... Maniacon? Maniacon, MC, all right. Mm -hmm. Is it, a, is it a spaceship? Well, I can, I can tell you what it is. All um, right. Is it dirty? No. Although is it a sex toy? No, although they do they do have some some weird, like, dirty pervert lyrics in some of their songs. <laughs> um, so another thing about Sandy Perlman is he was obsessed with secret societies and, like, um, conspiracy theories and stuff. So he had this idea that, because they reference Altamont, which is the famous concert where the Hells Angels were hired by the Rolling Stones as security and they killed a guy. This guy's a nut job um, and he's hired by Columbia Records. They're going to let him produce a, an album. <laughs> This is crazy. Know. So he just like thought that 
he he and another thing too about the band is that they started out as sort of like psychedelic flower power types mm-hmm. and then moved towards like a harder rock and so a big part of their early albums is this idea that like the hippie generation is like dead and gone the innocence of that is is over and now it's time for like hard rock so he had this this concept that this this idea that there was a secret society within the Hell's Angels that wanted chaos and destruction, and that's the transmaniacon motorcycle club that was responsible for making the decision to kill people in Altamont. So, I mean, it's, here's the band photo, and I mean, this is this is probably a photo that was just in these re-releases. Oh, I'm sure. But I mean, it's there. It's all over the place. Uh, Buck Dharma has a, a, a white suit on and a black <laughs> shirt and tie, and then uh, one of these guys, I don't know who he is. He's got leather pants and a wife beater on, and a big leather belt. I mean, it's just, I mean, the look is all over the place. There's nothing, there's nothing cohesive. These guys, yeah. they don't even look like they're be friends. <laughs> yeah. Be, I be in I, the same room together. Yeah. The seventies were, were a time when you didn't really have to be super image conscious, I guess. I guess not. <laughs> well, before we put this to bed, you got one more song. So tell I me do, where to yes. cue it up. Um, well, yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to have you start this one from the beginning. All right. Um, this is, uh, Eric uh, on doing the lead vocals, and he also did that on Transman Icon MC. This is Workshop of the Telescopes. production to be great on this album no it's bad it's really bad i don't think any of the band would would uh, argue with you on that they um i mean because sandy perlman maybe i don't know if maybe he became a, a better producer mm-hmm. later but he's like and murray krugman if you read interviews with him and i don't know why you would unless his name's krugman <laughs> but he is he insists that when they eventually got rid of him after specters that was like the beginning of their downfall he said something like they killed the golden goose and you're looking at him and he like if, if he's like the one who's responsible for this then he he shouldn't be like, he shouldn't so be taking credit for it. for it no yeah i think the first three albums really don't aren't like aren't mixed well no that all. was the first thing that i was like you know i throw this in the car and I crank it up because I'm in the car by myself. Right. And I was like, huh, what's going on here? This is kind of muddy. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of not good. And I was like, okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it makes sense if you think about it in the sense that Sandy Perlman was like a rock critic who mm-hmm. just sort of like stumbled his way into producing. And Murray Krugman was also like, like a, like a liaison between Columbia Records and their talent. So I don't know where like the, skill at production is you know and you think a rock critic would want to make an album that sounded good because he's going to be it's going to be reviewed by other (laughs) rock critics so you would think i'm going to put my best foot forward here yeah i have a feeling sandy perlman just based on what i know about him i i don't think he cared at for for better or worse i don't think he cared at all what other people had to say (laughs) that's always a good way to go through life don't Um, give a shit (laughs) and that song I, i like that song a lot um that one was one that um Eric and 
Al and Joe Bouchard and Buck and uh, Alan Lanier all wrote the music to, and then Perlman wrote the lyrics, mm-hmm. and he was just really interested in the pseudoscience of alchemy. So all those things he mentions, like the silverfish Imperatrix and the salamander Drake is all alchemy yeah, stuff. I, I looked at these lyrics when I was, <laughs> some, when, after, the, after I listened to it the initial time, then I went and looked at these lyrics and I go, I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Right. Well, there's no figuring I'm out I'm like, do I have to own. take, were they on acid? Were they a drug band? I don't think so. I think they were just weirdos. Okay. I mean, I, I think Alan will actually did have a, a drug problem that nobody else knew about, and that's part okay. of the reason why um, he and Patti Smith broke up, because they'd been together for like a long time in the 70s, and that's how she yeah, came into the band. That that's such a weird thing to me, that Patti Smith has a relationship within this band. Right. Because it doesn't seem like music she would be interested in. You wouldn't think so. No, but she's a poet. Too, so, uh, okay. Let me give you some stats. This, uh, in the U.S., this went to number 172. Right. Uh, no singles, no certifications. Yeah, I think they said it sold like 150,000 or something. And that's not, that's not bad. Oh, yeah, not bad at all for the time. Uh, for me, the best part about this album is the cover. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the two songs I picked were the only two songs I really liked. Workshop of the Telescopes would be the third but really, I don't like the rest of the album. You don't like The Last Days of May? I almost picked that one. I don't. Okay. I do not. Well, I, I, I get that. I mean, I, people talk about this one like it's mm-hmm. a, a classic, and it's never been one of my favorites. Yeah, if it was a classic, it would have been certified by now. People would, would have think. went and bought a, at least well, 500,000 copies. Only one of their first three albums ended up eventually getting a, a certification, too. Yeah, and... Uh, all right, so let's move on. We go to Tyranny and Mutation. It's a, a, a year and a month later, February 1973. Let's click on this. Uh, again, I got, a, I got a high praise for this album cover. Yes. I just love it. It's super cool. I love that one. It's really cool. It's the backlighting. I just, yeah, I just love it. And uh, again, we got uh, production by Krugman. Yep. And Perlman. Mm-hmm. Boy, oh boy! Yeah, the band do, and they—they they say I like this. I, I think this album's a lot better than the first one, but they—they um, it, they, it should be. They don't think so, though. They really they the band thinks that the first one's better. M- most of them do, and it's one of those things where they recorded the second one while they were doing like a like a real grueling tour schedule. Oh, okay, and so they felt like they were too rushed trying to get material, and I don't think you can tell. I think it sounds yeah, great. The first one sounds like it was recorded in a week in their garage, <laughs> right? Uh, same band, same members, Eric, Buck, Alan, Joe, Albert, mm-hmm. same, same, same. Yep. So, uh, what's your first track for us, Nate? Okay. This one, uh, I'm going to have you started at 16 seconds in. This is a rare, uh, Joe Bouchard lead vocal, uh, and he wrote it all by himself. This is called hot rails to hell. All right. Let me take this right up to about 16. <laughs> Trying to leave, but you know darn well The heat from 
I find that song to be better than anything that that's on the first album. Yeah, that's a great song. It's a really great song. Um, and and uh, Joe said that he wrote that about uh, the unsolved murder of one of their early booking agents, this guy who um, apparently was shot after trying to collect on a gambling debt. All right. That happens. Um, and because all of these guys were from like Long Island and upstate New York, except Lanier, who I think was from like the South. Um, and uh, so they all were still sort of like awed by coming into New York City to see shows and do stuff. And so Joe says that he got the idea after he heard about Phil King, the, this booking agent, uh, getting shot over a gambling debt. And then he was taking the subway into the city because um, it was too expensive to park in, okay. in the city proper. So they would park. Probably in, still like, is. I'm sure it is. So they would park in Queens and then take the subway into the city to see shows. And he just got this idea of the subway as it goes underground, the idea of it taking you to the next life. So that's what Hot Rails to Hell is about. All right. It uh, predates Highway to Hell. That's right. Uh, this is interesting to me. My my first song that I'm going to play is Seven Screaming Diz Busters. I don't even know what that means either. There's a lot of things. I don't know what any of this means. But what is weird to me is this is written by uh, the Bouchard brothers with uh, with Buck Dharma and Perlman. They wrote it, but Bloom sings it. Yeah. Like why? I would think if like if Buck wrote it, he would want to sing it. Well, they, that's not really how it was. No. A lot of them... Uh, wrote songs with somebody else's vocal in mind. And especially in the early days, um, a lot of the vocals were written with Eric in mind because he has a uh, very unique, uh, powerful voice that probably sounded great. Well, I know it sounds great live. Um, I don't like it that much on album, though. Really? And not on the first, not on these first couple. Really? Well, like I was kind of like, I don't know if he can sing that great. Yeah, I mean, he, he's got a lot of character. I, I like him a lot on, on, on some songs, but uh, you have to wonder, given that Buck Dharma, because he sang the lead on the two like only real hit singles that the, the band yeah, has. Yeah, I like, I like Buck's um, voice better. I, I think I like their poppier, hit-oriented songs when we get later on. Sure. And I think Eric's voice gets better. I think so. But I don't... But these first... Ones, it's well. I wonder if that has more to do with the production and mixing than yeah, it does well, with the actual. Let's blame. We'll voice. blame Perlman. <laughs> there we go. All right. I don't know what this means. Maybe you can explain it to me. But I do like this song. Seven screaming disbusters. <laughs> Like, I, I really like it, but I still feel that with better production, this song would be like some type of a classic song that everyone would know. It just, yeah, it's just missing on the production end for me still. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, this one is, is kind of gross, but uh, what apparently Perlman wrote his, he would use diz as slang for a penis. And so diz busting would be 
premature ejaculation, I guess. And so <laughs> right, the, now I hate it. The idea now of, you've ruined it for me. <laughs> well, and so it's supposed to con- I guess like one of his the, one of his friends said that a disbuster would then be like an attractive woman. And so the idea of seven screaming disbusters is like sirens who are trying to like lure and tempt you. All right. Well, I guess it's better than like, because like I thought, because I thought, is that going to be a gangbang? Is there going to be seven dizzes? No, it's seven crazy, diz, seven disbusters. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> They're weirdos, like I this said. Guy, is that guy still alive? Perlman, no, he's dead. Thank God. <laughs> Beca- and did he live a life? I got to click on I got to see how long this guy was. I think he died in 2012 or something, let's somewhere see, around there. Let's see how old he was then when he died. 72. Yeah. Well, in uh, Marin County, California is where he died. Born in Rockaway, Queens. Mm-hmm. Retired out here with all his uh, BOC money. Yeah, I'm sure. Probably. Like, I've never seen the guy's name on anyone else's... He, he, does oh, he re- produce other albums? Oh, yeah. He, he, really? Um, yeah, he produced um, Give Him Enough Rope by The Clash. Um, Re- really? Mm-hmm, yeah. He did... Uh, well, he must have got it together then a little bit. Yeah, he, he founded the, uh, uh, the Dictators, which were like an early uh, uh, punk band that mm-hmm. has a lot of cult success. He, he, he made a, a decent amount of waves in terms of like managing groups and stuff like that. But I don't know. I mean, he's probably most well known for how much influence he had inside like the BOC. And if you ask him, like the reason why they didn't stick with him and let him call all the shots, like that's why they, they sort of dropped off after a while. But, right. you know. Of course that's what he's going to say. <laughs> that's what he said. Uh, by the way, I, I've, I said this a couple episodes ago. I don't know if the, those will have dropped before this. But um, this, uh, this Nikki Six, this guy's driving, fucking driving me crazy with, with uh, talking about Kiss stealing their stage show oh, God. and all this stuff. First of all, Nikki, you had the worst live singer of all time. <laughs> you might not even, Molly Crew might not even be a good band. I, I don't even know if they're a good, they're good in the studio. Then they steal the umlaut. They steal that from Blue Oyster Cult. Oh, yeah. I mean, so don't start telling me about Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley have some risers that look like your last tour. Yeah. <sighs> That's Man. dumb. And, and it's like, what's, and what's the you, problem? And you're, and you're in your 60s. Yeah. We is starting to fight with two other 60-year-olds because you all wear makeup. <laughs> well, I mean, what's the like what's that going to solve? What if all like are all Kiss fans going to be like, "You know what? We 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 could we could forgive almost anything, but stealing another group's risers, risers forget it. Of all of the things that Gene especially has done <laughs> to make a business decision to steal another band's risers from their live show, how dare you? That's about as low as you can go, Gene. <laughs> yeah, that's that's ridiculous. Yeah. I I I find this might just be all, uh, uh, how much publicity can I get for the Dirt movie? I'll just start complaining about everything. That's all it is. Oh my God. Just trying to get into like headlines by complaining <sighs> about stuff. I mean, hey, that's what K.K. That's what Downing was doing when his autobiography came out. Did it come out already? Oh, yeah, it's been out for a while. It came out with like little fanfare because I don't even re- I didn't even remember hearing I, yeah. I knew it was coming out, but I didn't know it came out. I mean, music journalists were talking about it. Um, but did you read it? Yeah, I read it. And I mean, I, I really like a lot of his insights about the early band, but he's just got such a fucking chip on his shoulder about the fact that he's not in the band anymore. And I had so much respect for him, but I found it very convenient that nothing from him after retiring from the music industry, you know, a, like seven years prior, then all of a sudden he's making all these waves talking about how the band never really had a real direction and how, um, 
he should have been brought in to replace uh, Glenn after Glenn got his Parkinson's diagnosis. Uh, and 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 just like throwing all, making all throwing all these barbs out about the man, and then it, it turns out oh he's got a book coming out oh and also he made a bunch of bad investments on a golf course <laughs> and had to sell his royalties okay. so it's like okay I and see what I see what you're doing uh, did he did they fire him or did he quit he quit he quit after the um, Nostradamus tour and I think it was because he was complaining about I think he was mad that. Um, Rob had sort of been welcomed back into the band with open arms and Rob and Glenn were sort of calling a lot of the shots. Yeah. And then also that fans didn't really like Nostradamus. Um, I think that's the reason why. And he, he retired like via email. He sent them like an email from Hawaii saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not coming back to tour again. So I just, I don't get it. You know who doesn't care about all that stuff? Ian Hill. I'm sure he doesn't. He's like, you guys are calling the shots. Good. One less thing for me to do. Exactly. Tell me, when, are we touring? Are we recording? Are we making money? All right, I'm in. Oh, and he was the first one when, when KK came out with all this, I can't believe they didn't ask me to come back and replace Glenn. He was like, he retired from not just the band, but from playing music in general and yeah. went off to build golf courses in like the country in England. So why would we, like, why would we ever reach out to him instead of someone who knows our music inside yeah. and out? Yeah, like especially when someone retires from the music business or leaves a band and then doesn't form another band or do anything, you're like, well, he's done with music. Right. Why would you call him back? And I think he would have stayed that way if he had not lost all of his money and making these really bad yeah. investments. And so again, like the fact that all these things are coming out and then he announces, Oh, my book's coming out. Oh, and by the way, I'm also selling all of my royalties. Um, <laughs> if you're interested. And that's a lot, that's like $600,000 a year or something like that. Yeah. And just in the Judas priest royalties. So For that's, sure. That's like, that's not chump change. Not. All right. We're still on tyranny and mutation, <laughs> right? Uh, Oh, it's my turn. It okay. is your turn. So I'm going to have you start from the beginning on this one. All right. Um, I can do it. This is uh, Baby Ice Dog. Sandy Perlman says this is a penis. <laughs> I had this bitch, you see. She made lies to me. Her deceit, oh, give me a chill. That was what I don't like about this song. I don't like the lyrics. I like the music, but then... Yeah, this is... Um, the lyrics are a little incomprehensible. This is actually um, Patti Smith's first contribution to the lyrics, uh, and no one knows what it's about. Uh, she didn't really... She would often... Not always, but she would often just give sets of lyrics to... For some reason, even Maybe they she, weren't even lyrics. Maybe they're just like musings or... They probably were. Haikus. Well, it's weird that even though she and Alan Lanier were dating, I don't think she ever collaborated with him on songs. She would always give Al Bouchard um, her lyrics. So he and, um, and Eric Bloom wrote that. And it is just like he said, these were just like a bunch of lines that she gave me and I arranged them in a way that sort of made sense made a, for made someone to sentence. sing. And I don't know, I just, I, I really like the, the music for that. I and, do too, um, but not the, I don't like the lyrics that much. That's a little weird. <laughs> the, um... This album is divided into four songs make up the black side, and then uh, four songs make up the red. Yes. That, that kicked off the red side. Yeah, they referenced the red and the black on one of the songs, um, uh, the red and the black, is a remake of a song uh, 
that's on their first album called I'm on the Lamb, but I ain't no sheep. They rewrote some of the lyrics and did a rearrangement. So it's actually about being a draft dodger in Canada being chased down by the Mounties, who are the red and black. And that's the song I'm going to play right now. All right. The red and the black. It's no trooper. (laughs) But here it is. So ends our trip through tyranny and mutation. Oh, that's a great album title, too. Yeah, it is a good album title. We're moving on. We're moving on to Secret Treaties. Mm. Comes out a year and a couple of months after that, April 1974. This one goes up to number 53 and also gets certified gold. Yep. I like this the best out of the first three. Yeah, a lot of people do. I, I, I think yeah. I agree with people who say it's like one of the best of their early ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like the album cover too. The album cover is a, it's a drawing of them uh, in front of like a, a bomber plane. Yep, an ME-262, which is one of the songs on the album as well. Um, yeah. You know what? I picked that song. So can oh, okay. we do, I'm just, let's just get into that yeah, and then we'll keep it. talking. ME-262. This was the, the first of the three albums where I had to decide which would be my two. Nice. The other out al- the other two I was like, oh, I like this one and maybe this one. But this yeah. this uh, this I had to make some decisions. So so you were saying uh, you were describing you were talking about it and then I interrupted with my song. No, well, it made sense. Treaties. It made sense to flow into it. Okay. Um, yeah, that's that song's about. Uh, it was a little controversial at the time because. Um, Sandy Perlman wrote that song. <laughs> well, he wrote it from the point of view of a German pilot during World War II um, going into like aerial combat against the British. Um, and you can find all kinds of like, if, if I don't know why one would, but if one wanted to go onto like Blue Oyster Cult forums or whatever, you could find <laughs> a bunch of people bitching about like the technical details that they mm-hmm. reference being wrong for the time. By the way, Blue Oyster Cult has the worst website I've ever seen. <laughs> they really it do. It is horrible. I mean, there, there were and there was there was a point when we had talked about it. Did we talk about this on on the? Did we talk about Rudy? Yeah, we did. We talked about that. We were mm. recording. There was a point when Rudy Sarzo was in the band. They like just photoshopped him into like another <laughs> yeah. band photo. I mean, it was. Yeah. It looks. It looks like a website like when websites first started. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly think it's because they don't really 
care. They, they don't really care at this point because they, they tour a bunch, They but it's just, you know, Eric and Buck left at this yeah. point, and they haven't had a record deal in almost 20 years, yeah. and so I think they just don't care about, they, they like, you know, if you want to buy our music, you can go to Amazon. If you want to, you know, find out where we're going to be, just, you know, follow the band on Facebook, so who gives a <laughs> shit about the website? I just love a nice website where you go and you click on the album cover and it gives you all the stats oh, and yeah. the, the lyrics. I mean, it's not brain surgery anymore in 2019. Right. Kyle could build their website for them. But the Rock Solid Podcast website yeah. is better than the Blue Oyster Cult website. Oh, yeah. And it's funny because, yeah, you think of it. I remember thinking in contrast to, like, um, the Iron Maiden uh, website, which is amazing. But oh, my God, the Iron Maiden website. There's so, there's, like, everything you can imagine oh, on yeah. there. And you think about it from the concept of, of course, well, they've got a they've got a huge like corporate machine behind them, but then it's like, well, wait, you could just get Squarespace and do this yeah. you know, yourself. Yeah, like Iron Maiden does have a huge corporate machine behind them, and yet they still take the, they, their music and all that stuff seriously. Yeah. They don't go out and just play 12 hits and leave the state, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, They absolutely. mix it up, and you going to see Maiden this year? Of course, yeah, they're coming through uh, Dallas in September, so I'll be yeah. out there. I'm yeah. flying up to... Um, to uh, where is it? Oakland to see them because they're playing in an outdoor place here in LA and I don't want to see them outdoors. Right. So I'm going up to Oakland to see them indoors. Makes sense. Uh, it's your turn because I jumped in with my, uh, with my songs and now you get to play your first secret treaties. All right. Okay. So I'll have you start this one at the beginning. Um, this is another Al Bouchard lead vocal. This is Dominance and Submission. for some reason well blue oyster cults on the east coast making these first three albums the eagles are here on the west coast making their first three albums <laughs> and this music couldn't be more different these two bands it's right. crazy oh yeah i mean not that anyone would compare blue oyster cult with the eagles i'm sorry eagles yeah please but um but it's just it's just uh it's just wild to me yeah it makes it makes sense if you if you think about it from the I guess perspective of the Eagles always wanted to be huge on the radio and everything. Yeah. And I don't think that became important to the cult until later in their career. But until they didn't have any money in the back and they're like, Hey, maybe we should maybe try to get a hit here. <laughs> yeah. Cause you know, by the time, even though this album goes gold, they probably owed like the label money from well, the first two things. Maybe well, first what two albums I call them things. <laughs> yeah. Things Did you get the new thing industry term. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's what, 
Al, because I read an interview with him where he was saying that, you know, each album was selling about 100,000 more than the previous one. That's good. That's were, very good. And they were touring so much. And they had this reputation uh, that they were a fantastic live act. Uh, and so they were filling, you know, like theaters and clubs, like all around the East Coast and even and even kind of starting to get into the Midwest by this point. So they said they were doing pretty well for money like back then because their stage show didn't have a lot of uh, like cost being sunk into it. But by the mid 70s, when they started having to put lasers and stuff like that, Godzilla. In, right. <laughs> like the Godzilla stuff. That's when they started to like really take, uh, you know, single sales and album sales more seriously. Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said to just go make an album. Exactly. Um, but yeah, this song is uh, is one of the weirder ones. Uh, I really like that riff. Um, this was done by, I think Eric and Al wrote the uh, the music to it, and then Perlman wrote the lyrics. And part of it's, if, if I can kind of understand what he's talking about, every time I read his breakdown of what lyrics are, I'm like, I'm a little bit more confused than I was when I just tried to guess. But... The reason he references 1963 is because that's when the Beatles made their debut on the Ed Sullivan show. And so it's this idea of a person being initiated into adulthood by like rock and roll, which is again, like he's talking about it as like this conquering force that brings like destruction and stuff too. I don't know. Just the little that you've told me about this guy, just the little bit that I've learned in (laughs) our first hour and four minutes. I feel like if he didn't go into music, he would have been like L. Ron Hubbard. Probably. He would have started like his own Blue Oyster cult. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) Uh, Okay, my next song is the one that kicks off the album, lyrics by Patti Smith and music by Al Bouchard and lead vocals shared by Al Bouchard and Mr. Bloom. This is Career of Evil. Uh, it's so weird to me because Patty, I just, just this Patty Smith relationship with this band is so crazy to me because <laughs> they're working with this, you know, this nut job producer, and she worked with John Cale on her first album, Jack Douglas on her second album, right. Jimmy Iovine on her third album, Todd Rundgren on her fourth album. I mean, like she's working with like. You know, these, and then uh, Fred Smith and Jimmy Iovine produced her fifth album. Right. She's working with like top class behind the boards producers. Yeah. And then she goes over and this, wonder what she found interesting about wanting to lend lyrics to this band, other than that she had a relationship with one of the members. She must have thought they were good. Well, I mean, a lot of people did. I know, yeah. um, I think it was Murray Krugman had a story about Krugs. <laughs> I think he had a story about when they were recording at the, I think it was the record plant. Um, 
Bruce Springsteen was there one day and he heard them playing some song. I think it was, it might've been career of evil. He heard them, he heard them like laying down one song mm-hmm. and he was like, that's amazing. Like I, I, I can't believe uh, a band could play that loud. And it was, it was a song from, I think secret trees. It might've been ME two, six, two. Yeah. I was walking through a, I was at a record plant and I heard this, uh, uh, B-O-C. I said, what's your band's name? I said, B-O-C. I said, Bach. They said, no, it stands for Blue Oyster Cult. I don't know what the fuck that means. But they were aggressive, and they were uh, they were loud. And I was like, I called Steve Van Zandt over. I said, Steve, we might plug your guitar in next time. Wow. And, and how Steve, many times platinum do you think that album's going to go? Oh, it, it well, mm, that's it. It didn't, because it didn't go platinum. It went gold. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Bruce. So I didn't. I didn't want to waste a number. So I just went, mm. It's also the same noise I made when I have indigestion. Great, Bruce. Thanks. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> One. <laughs> uh, are we moving on? Wait, no, you have another song. I have one more, yeah. Um, so I'm going to have you start this at uh, 15 seconds in. Uh, I'll try to do so. This is written by uh, Eric and Al and Buck. Uh, and it's got uh, lyrics by uh, Perlman. This is Flaming Telepath. It's interesting. There's not one lyric on this album written by a band member. Oh yeah, they they really they loved to just pull stuff, just that, interpret other people's words. They like to take lyrics that because Sandy Perlman had just like stacks of like poetry and short stories and lyrics that he would just write, and uh, they would just go through it and find stuff that fit well with the music. And then you know, I mean, even though we're it's mostly like Perlman lyrics that we we've been picking. Yeah, they did also work with like Richard Meltzer. Yeah, he like, does two songs on here. Perlman does five, and Patti Smith. Does yeah. one, and then there's a non-LP B side. They recorded a cover of uh, "Born to Be Wild," right? Which is pretty fun. Yeah, um, and this is like after this album, they they put out their because uh, they really wanted to capture the energy of their live show. So they put out a live album, which is I think it's a little bit too early in their careers to be putting out a live album. Yeah, I don't like that live album too much. No, and what's and it called? It's um, on your feet or on, on your knees. Yeah, great. It's a great album cover. Great. Oh yeah, great title. But I mean. Yeah, and it's it's a double album, which is nuts for a band that only has three. Yeah, and they're albums. Like, they could. Play, and did did Perlman produce that? No, that's actually that was one that was. Well, I don't know whether he produced it or, but I know Jack Douglas mixed it because they actually really wanted to get Jack Douglas involved. So I don't know whether Perlman produced it and Jack Douglas mixed find it, out. or if he mixed and produced it. I'm not sure. No, it says produced by Krugman and Perlman. Okay, yeah. Let me see what Douglas did. Douglas was engineer and mixer. Okay, yeah. Wow. I don't know. And, and, and I think Krugman did say he, he thought it was odd that they decided to do a live album as well. Well, maybe it was like, maybe they felt like it was like, uh, kind of like what Kiss did with Kiss Alive. 
same year. Yeah, maybe they're they're like, hey, no one's. We're a great live act. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can capture that and we'll gain an audience. You know, cheap trick too with sure. uh, you know Budokan. Yeah, but, I, um, and it you know it's just my least favorite of their live albums. And yeah, I, I'm not a fan of it. I uh, I just don't think they have the material yet, and it sounds rough because they yeah. recorded it you know in a place with bad monitors and stuff. That's what they say. So <laughs> eh. always smart mistakes. <laughs> mistakes have been made. Yes. All right, we're moving on to Agents of Fortune. Let me check out this album cover. I understand that this is a drawing of a photo, is what someone told me. Oh, I haven't heard that. That it was a photo, and then someone did a, a drawing of the photo. Oh, that, that, make, that makes sense, because yeah. it does have sort of a, like a photorealism, like as yeah. far as the posing goes. It's a good album cover. It's uh, not white and black and with a little red anymore. We got a full color on here. Mm-hmm. And um, this album does pretty well. It does better than the last one. This one goes up to number 29 in the U.S., 28 mm-hmm. in Canada, number 10 in Sweden, number 26 in the U.K. It does go platinum. Mm-hmm. And this is Agents of Fortune. What's the first song? The band's still the same. Yes. Still the same members. Stand strong. Yep. What's your first track? Uh, this is one I'm going to have you start this at the beginning, uh, okay. written by Buck and Sandy Perlman. This is E.T.I. sings that one even though he had no hand in the writing yeah he i mean they when they brought him in it was because they had kicked out their previous lead singer when they were i think they were called the soft white underbelly at the time or something like that one of perlman's ideas um and they just brought him in because he like worked in a record store with that they just went to a lot and had a and had a van um and they credit him on some albums as playing stun guitar instead of rhythm guitar. And they call that because they didn't think he was a good enough player to actually call it the rhythm, but they just found like little weird like parts for him to play, just like a couple of chords. Um, And yeah, I mean, it seems like, I don't know. It seems like a lot of the songs that they wrote uh, where he is the singer are ones that could probably have been sung by other people, but you can't deny that he, gives it a unique personality some of the some of the ones that he sings yeah no 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 that's true that's true i'm gonna check something out on the last album and this song um was and again going back to perlman's weird conspiracy theory stuff this is about aliens uh being cited the government keeping it a secret or them being responsible for like religion like world religion he probably really believed that. that too this is is he believed this stuff it's hard to tell when you when you read interviews with him whether he believes it or whether he is just doing it as like a joke or whether it's somewhere in between right you know the um now this album sounds way better it's engineered yeah. by shelly yakis who went on to 
do all the Tom Petty stuff with yep. Jimmy Iovine. Yep. So um, that guy obviously knows what he's doing. And uh, this has the song on it. I'm just going to play it. Mm-hmm. Got to play it. Of course. It's great. I mean, it's one of my favorite Blue Oyster Cult songs. It oh, just, yeah. It just is. It's it brilliant. Sounds, it is. And it's written by Buck Dharma, sung by Buck Dharma. Mm-hmm. And uh, here we go. Took it right from the beginning. Now, when I first saw the Saturday Night Live sketch, <laughs> I had no idea that there was even cowbell in this because it's very subtle. Right. It's there nonstop, but it's it's not aggressive. Right. Uh, that Saturday Night Live sketch is my favorite Saturday Night Live sketch of all time. <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious. Even though it is filled with inaccuracies. Yep. Because, first of all, and I pick up my shades, not my shades, not my shades at all. Just my readers. Um, so if you pick up the remastered version of Blue Oyster Cult Agents of Fortune, on the back it says produced for reissue by Bruce Dickinson. Right. Bruce Dickinson didn't record, produce these. Right. He just, he just, you know, he just oversaw the reissue and the remastering right. of these reissues. And if they would have used Murray Krugman or Sandy Perlman in that sketch, both yeah. of those names work better than Bruce Dickinson. Oh, yeah. I think. Oh, yeah. You know? Absolutely. I'm Sandy Perlman. Oh, I yeah. I can't do it. The, the, I, I imagine Christopher Walken being closer to like what Sandy Perlman is, was like yeah, in real yeah. life anyways. And Murray Krugman is a hysterical name. I know. So that was really lazy writing and lazy... Like, I think they sent an intern out and say, hey, go buy the album, whatever album Don't Fear the Reaper's on, oh, buy yeah. that and tell me, just tell, or maybe they just said, are you at the Tower Records in Times Square? Yeah. Who produced that album? Oh, is it oh, yeah. uh, Bruce Dickinson. All right, perfect. Well, that's why I also think, because there's a specific part where the guy who's singing and he's, you know, getting mad at Gene and yeah. Gene's like, shut up, Eric. And <laughs> Eric is not the guy who's singing lead, famously not the guy who's right. singing lead on that and, and also, Will Ferrell looks like Eric Bloom in does. the sketch. He does. There's and there's no Gene in the band, right? Yeah, they. Uh, I mean, what if you're gonna if you're gonna say this is Blue Oyster Cult and you're gonna use the song? It's not that difficult to get the names right. Like if instead of yeah. Gene, if they would have said Al or Look Buck, you know what I mean? I don't know. I guess pre like Wikipedia and Google, people were okay with just like I guess we'll never know. You know, all they had to do was pick this thing up and <laughs> read the credits. Yeah, you would think, but yeah, that is a great that is a a, a great sketch. It's I love such that a great sketch. It's really funny. And Jimmy Fallon says that when they the night of taping, Will Ferrell wore a shirt that was smaller 
because I oh, guess wardrobe yeah. has, you know, they had this shirt and they have it in different, and he wore a, a smaller one so his belly would be out. <laughs> right. And um, <laughs> it makes me laugh every time. Like, I will never not laugh at that sketch. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's brilliant. It's so good. All right, what's your first song? Uh, well, my second song. Your second song, I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, this is, I'll just have you start at the beginning on this one. Uh, this is another Al Bouchard and Patti Smith collaboration. This is The Revenge of Vera Gemini. Like a saint. Hey. With a consciousness. Patty. A snake. I forgot to say that uh, Don't Fear the Reaper went to number 12 in the U.S. And it was actually top 20, you know, all over the, you know, all over the place. Oh, yeah. By far their biggest hit. Instant yeah. classic. Yes. And so weird that it's the first song that um, Buck wrote almost. I think it's one of the first songs he wrote by himself. I think he also wrote The Last Days of May maybe by himself. But it is weird that for the first time in a while. And he didn't have any lead vocals on um, Secret Treaties at yeah, all. no. I mean, that must have caused some problems. Well, the thing is, like, I, I know there were there were rumors that I think Al said that <coughs> Al said that Eric um, didn't want that to come out unless he got to sing lead on it, and it wouldn't have worked with no, him as the lead no, vocalist. no, it, it wouldn't. Um, have. And I don't know, like, it's it's odd. It, it feels like Buck is maybe one of the few guys in the band who really had strong commercial instincts. Yes, um, the rest of the guys. Not not to disparage it, because they seem to be really into doing sort of like twisty, um, sort of like thinking man's hard rock with like a lot of sinister, scary stuff. And Buck kind of really had this talent for doing like really poppy, hooky stuff. And, you know, I'm, I don't know, maybe the fact that there's so many cooks in the kitchen is part of the reason yeah. why, you know, they just never quite like made it to, I mean not that they haven't been successful but they could have been a million times more successful I think if Buck and had been know, a little more yeah. brought to the forefront maybe if I mean a lot of I don't know maybe he's just too nice of a guy you know that might be part of it that might be a like guy, guy wears a, he wears a you know three piece suit the other guys are wearing leather well my understanding is that Al Bouchard was kind of like the the domineering one who always okay. kind of like fought and yelled to get his way and would get into like confrontations with the other guys. Great. And I feel like if Buck had been that guy, even though it's probably good that he's not, but if he was that guy, then maybe they would have been like, you know, a lot of their songs would have made it to like top 40 radio. What about Buck's solo album? He's the only one of the band that really did a, a, a proper solo album. Oh yeah. Flat, flat out. out. Yeah. I'm, I've listened to it. I listened to it on Spotify. I think once, um, I mean, it's not very well produced, in my opinion. He produced um, it. Yeah. Didn't he learn anything from Krugman and Perlman? I mean, apparently he learned all the wrong <laughs> things. Yeah. 
Uh, it's okay. It, it seems like there's like some really good ideas just buried in a lot of stuff that that doesn't work. Which I mean, sometimes that's how it is when guitarists do solo albums. You know? Yeah. They just a little bit too much noodling and kind of. Because I was wondering, like, oh, since I, I I like the songs he sings, I wonder if this is a good album. But you're telling me it it is just okay. Uh, yeah, I would say it's fine. Uh, my next song, I had I had two. I still have two. I have this ain't the summer of love, but I'm actually gonna play. The other Patti Smith and Bouchard song, uh, Debbie Denise. I think it's interesting that the two songs they wrote for this album both have women's names in the title. Hmm. Vera Gemini and, and Debbie Denise. So let's hear uh, Debbie Denise. possibly be like a Springsteen song. Oh, yeah. Debbie Denise. Oh, yeah. I think so. <laughs> uh, and the other song I had was This Ain't the Summer of Love, which is a great song. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a really good one. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of great tracks on, on Agents of Fortune. It's a, I think it's a really strong album. Yeah, and, and it, you know, it, the proof was in the sales. That's right. In the hits. That's right. Uh, okay, so we move on to Spectres. I do not like this album cover. Yeah, I just don't, you know what? I just, I think it's a horrible photo. Yeah. And this is a remastered version. So they, those usually have the best copy possible of the right. photo on the front. It's just them. And like, are they like at a poker table? Yeah. They, looks like it was taken like in the basement of the magic castle. That's a place out here. Right. Um, I just don't like it. Yeah, I don't know what the deal was with that. I think part of it was that they were trying to have sort of like a little bit of a sinister vibe. And here's a hand s- sneaking through. like. A, but I mean, the title Spectres could have been a much yeah. better album cover. It does, this doesn't look sinister to me at all. Yeah, I don't, It's almost like uh, dogs playing pool. <laughs> right. I think it's a mistake to have a band that looks the way the guys in Blue Oyster Cult Not do. Not looking guys. Just, just don't have photos of them be on the album covers. That's what I would say. And then this bat, then the back cover with like a laser coming out of his thing. It's just, yeah, it's a hot mess. That's around the time that they were starting to get really into lasers. And I think every guy in the band is like, that was a mistake. We <laughs> like, we thought it would be cool, but it ended up, we ended up losing money on tours that normally would have made us, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. So Spectres yeah, goes mistake. gold though. That's true. So, and this is produced by lots of people here. Krugman, Perlman, David Lucas, and the band gets a producer credit. Yeah. First of all, that's way too many people yep. uh, with uh, their fingers in the, in the creative pie, so to speak. Oh, yeah. I mean, how were any decisions made when that many people yeah. turn it up? I say turn it down. We'll turn it up a little bit. I want to turn it down a little bit. Well, one more thing, bass, less bass. I know one thing that the guys in the band said was starting with um, Agents of Fortune instead of writing and like jamming the songs in the studio they started they got columbia to give them um uh 
uh, recorders, like four track, like demo machines. Okay. And they would go to their individual homes. And prior to that, I think they'd been living together too. They would go to their own homes and like come up with songs. So oftentimes they would just have songs ready to go by the time they came into the studio and they would record it. So I don't know if that maybe like limited the ability of yeah. the producers to, or maybe that's the reason why they did it was because they didn't want all these producers to change stuff or dilute their ideas. But I don't know. It, it does feel like things are a little bit too scattered now. And this is especially a time when it's like, Hey, let's capitalize on the success of agents of fortune. Let's get one really good, you know, pop producer yeah. in here and let's make this happen. Yeah. They should have, they should have finally worked with like an outside producer that they haven't worked with before. Yeah. And I think, I don't, I just think Perlman gave a shit about that kind of stuff. And I don't know. I mean, I mean, I guess FM radio at the time was weird enough. Like you, you could get like, there's, this isn't a lot of prog bands are yeah. getting like album cuts and stuff on, on like alt radio. So it's not like there's not a market for the type of stuff that they were doing, but it's also like, you know, once you get a taste of that, like top 20 money, yeah. then I don't know how you can go back to being like a beloved cult band. You don't want to. I'm yep. sure. And really only Buck Dharma was getting a taste of that top 20 money. Well, I mean, I mean, I'm sure some of them were getting performance royalties. Performance royalties, that's, yeah. That's nothing compared to the writing royalties. No. Um, all right, we're going to, uh, we're into Spectres. Let me see, when did this one come out? I got to find that out. That's 77, I think. November 77. So it's, uh, you know, just a, a year after, after Agents of Fortune, Spirit of 76 is when that came out. What's, mm -hmm. your, uh, what's your first song? Uh, this is one I'm going to have you start at 41 seconds in. Okay. Uh, this is a solo composition by uh, Lanier, but it's sung by Eric Bloom. This is Searching for Celine. And you said 40 seconds? Yeah, about 41 seconds 41, in. 41, I can find that. There we go. You can tell that was sort of, you know, re released around the height of disco time, but yeah, it's a little, little bit dancey in there. Yeah. But I like it. Um, yep. and that one is actually about the, the poetry of Louis Ferdinand Celine, who was a, uh, a French poet around like the turn of the 20th century. Uh, and apparently Lanier was also kind of like a bit of a pretentious guy. Um, and apparently it was supposed to be about sort of a love song about the poetry and it was supposed to be, I've been, I've been searching for his company, but then Eric Bloom was like, I don't want people to get the wrong idea. So I'm going to say searching for her company. I really wouldn't have wanted to be at the breakfast table with Lanier and Patty Smith. I think that would have driven me crazy. <laughs> I'm sure it would have. I just, I just would not have related to those people. Oh yeah. And the reason I wouldn't have related to them is because I like this song.
What what makes you just say I'm gonna write I'm gonna write a song about Godzilla? I I, I think it was just because a lot of the guys in the band were fans of like old you know, monster movies and stuff. Like Nosferatu is closes out this album, a song right. called Nosferatu. Godzilla opens it. I, um, yeah, I like that song. That's, yeah. I, uh, Buck. It's an all-time classic, yeah. It is. He's, he has the all-time classics. Yeah, I think, I, I think a lot of the, a lot of the ones that people remember are ones that he either sang or wrote. I would say that for sure. Like him and, him and Eric must be friends because it would be very easy for Buck to just, tour on his own he sings the more popular songs Mm -hmm. yeah i i i I, it seems like they're the only ones that have their friendship has like really stood the test of time you know well i guess lanier because he he only left the band i think because he was like his health was failing okay passing away but um but the band's still strong at this point still the same band have you heard the um the the cover of this song that's going to be in the new Godzilla movie. Kyle told me about it today. He said it's not good. It's not. And that's funny because I just saw the uh, I just saw the the Pet Cemetery remake. Yeah. And when the end credits come up, I'm like, please let it be the Ramones still. Yeah. And it was some it's such a piece of garbage. The remake of Pet Cemetery. Who did the? Did someone perform this uh, cover of that song? Yeah. Yeah. For the new movie. Do you know who it was? No, uh, I don't. Maybe I can find it. Let me go to the. Uh, I'll go to the iTunes store. I bet I can find it. It's just. It's just like a zero. Yeah, I remember uh, in one of this one horror movie called Your Next. Like the Dwight Twilley song "Looking for the Magic" is a big part of like the 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 music in like that's a record that gets played a lot in that song. And then over the credits, it's like MGMT doing a cover of it. And it doesn't sound as good. Okay, so here I'll. I'll for, uh, this is this is from the iTunes store. So first, I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play the Ramones. A little bit of the Ramones version of Pet Cemetery. To the sacred place This ain't a dream I can't escape Molders and fangs that are picking up bones Spirits moaning among the tombstones And at night when the moon It's great. Yeah, it's, it's perfect. That's a classic. Now let's hear Star Crawler. actually physically shrugged when that was playing <laughs> you did yeah. and it's like look if if there wasn't a ramones version maybe this version's okay but it's just not different enough if you're going to cover it yeah. don't do it in the style of the ramones otherwise just use the ramones yeah and, and the, the heavy production and the vocals are like i don't know they sound like I don't a little know, too processed yeah. process perfect uh so yeah i just uh yeah i mean at the end of the original pet cemetery when Boom, the Ramones come in. It's like, holy crap. And at the end of this, I was like, who's it going to be? What the fuck? Did not care for it. Uh, I played Godzilla, so I think we're back to you. Searching for Celine, then Godzilla, and then you. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I'll have you start at the beginning on this one. This is an Al uh, Bouchard solo, and he also uh, sings it, too. Uh, This is Fireworks. Thank you. 
It's so funny when they can go into like a, a more poppy thing like that. Yeah, that should have been a much bigger hit. Um, I don't really know why. I'm not even, I think that was released as a single. I'm pretty sure, but yeah, that should have been like the that was like the logical follow up to um, Fear the Reaper. And yeah. Sometimes Al's voice doesn't always sound great when he's singing, but it sounded pretty good on this one. Um, yeah, it, that was not released as a single. Yeah, don't know why it wasn't. Should have been. I Love the Night, Godzilla, and then the song I'm Gonna Play, which was co-written with Ian Hunter, is going through the motions. Two hours of to go to the iTunes store real quick because I don't have this one in here but they uh this album one of the uh one of the bonus tracks is they do a cover of the Spectre of the of um not Ronnie Spectre what's her band what's uh the Ronettes oh yeah yeah they do a cover of um of Be My Baby Mm -hmm. and it's pretty cool so let me see if I can find if it's on iTunes is it there no. Oh, okay. Hold on a second. Maybe there's a special edition version of it here that I can find. It's good radio, always. Just rambling, not knowing what you're doing. Yeah, just filling the time. Filling the time. All oh, right. Can't find it. But it's good. Yes. That's what I'm going to tell you. Yeah, the I will say I think the remastered versions, I don't always like it when like a reissued CD is just like full of like b-sides mm-hmm. and outtakes and stuff but there's actually some really interesting stuff there on. is I, yeah i hate when it's like you know take those some of those beatles reissues with take 13 of this track it's like i don't care oh, yeah. I, I like the track they released oh yeah and that's the one they liked yeah i bought a a, a cd of um truth the 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 jeff beck uh mm-hmm. album and it's like when I when I, I remember when i was exporting it to itunes it was like 31 tracks i was like what the hell is this yeah and i look and like like I think 12 of the tracks are the studio tracks and the rest of them are all like, you know, rough cut of yeah. this with like Jeff Beck guide vocal. I'm like, I don't want to hear that shit. No. I don't want to hear like the version that's on or, the album. Or, you know, or like uh, ooh, with added piano or string version. I said, no. Yeah. No thanks. That, those, so many times the bonus tracks are something I listen to once. Yeah. It, it's a rare, it's rare when I'm like, wow, that's really cool. And I think I've said this before, an example that I, there is a really cool, uh, uh, version of the Fleetwood Mac song Sarah on Tusk. It's an yeah, early yeah. version of Sarah, and that's that's really cool. I, yes. And I do listen to that quite a bit. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I really like. Um, there's a demo version of um, Hold Me that um, Christine McVie did uh, for Mirage, mm-hmm. and I like that. Like, it might actually, I might actually like it slightly better than. Um, the uh, the final version because it's not just repeating hold me it's like hold me hold me like a lover should or something like okay. that and it's actually really good I love Mirage yeah that's that, that might be my favorite of uh, theirs. It, it's my favorite Fleetwood Mac album I love it like when that was coming out remastered I'm like it's about 
fucking time. Oh yeah, I bought it day. Uh, I oh, think yeah. I pre-ordered it. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, in in Tango because that came out the same day, but uh, Tango in the night. Yeah, of course. Well, of course, I know. <laughs> Who you, you gave me a look. Here? You gave me a look. Uh, yeah, I lo- I love I love the Lindsay songs on mm-hmm. Empire State. Oh yeah, uh, Book of Love is great. Uh, oh, Diane, Eyes of the World. Eyes of the World. Um, it's killer. Yeah, and the Christine songs are great too. Out of my head. Um, and I like that they oh, just man. said, "Well, after Tusks, well, we're just going to make like a pop album." Yeah, and that's the thing too is that people like to shit. Critics like to shit it on Mirage. It's like, oh, they played it safe after Tusk. Like they they took a step back. What do you want them to do? Go further? Yeah. It's like like not enough people bought Tusk when yeah. they when they were like making their statements. So right. let them do like some cool shit. Yeah, and it it worked fine. Yeah, that's God. That that album really holds up. Yeah, I think so too. All right, so now we're moving into 1979. Well, yeah, because in, in 1978, they released their second live Some album. Some Enchanted Evening, and it's good. Yeah, and that one went platinum too, I yeah. think. Um, and that one's, yeah, that one's a lot better. They actually have material now, even though yes. there's still some like cover stuff and a few weird like live choices that I don't love, but it's still good, and it's got a fun cover too. It's got the Grim Reaper It on does. There. That's always good. Um, oh, and something else uh, that's interesting, we, were, we, we might have to play the the nerd talk uh, sting again here oh boy. but um there uh during the 70s uh, there was a comic book called the defenders which was sort of like the the b-list like uh version I, of the avengers i love the defenders it's let me see let me see if i can get it it was uh dr strange uh-huh it was uh namer mm-hmm. the hulk yep and was that it or was it was sometimes silver surfer so, was sometimes there too. silver surfer yeah i love the and, defenders uh, yeah and th- this was like at a time when it was like Nighthawk and Valkyrie and a bunch of uh, nothings like on the team because they were all being used by other books. But the writers, David Kraft and Ed uh, Hannigan, they were huge Blue Oyster Cult fans. <laughs> Here we go. Nerd Talk. You guys are nerds. Yeah. yeah. Most, <laughs> that's going to be the most deserved one of the night, I think. <laughs> so keep um, going. So they were just huge Blue Oyster Cult fans, and they wrote the band and asked for permission to use a bunch of references and their likenesses in an arc that they were writing for the Defenders. So issues 58 through 60 of the Defenders, which came out April through June of 1978. Christ, why didn't um, I save that sting for right now? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, There's actually like issue one is called um, uh, Agents of Fortune. And the Agents of Fortune it's are an evil cool. cult that wants to bring back like Lovecraft led, gods. Led by Sandy Perlman. Their leader is Vera Gemini. Oh, okay, cool, nice. And, and then the second issue is called Tyranny and Mutation. And and um, and then like her inner council, like who are on the Agents of Fortune cult, are all demons in the forms of the guys in the band. Okay. It's very clearly based on like a publicity photo that they did in the 70s. And, and um, one of the guys is Gene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so and then the, and the third issue is called the revenge of Vera gemini and so it's it's real dumb and bad but there's like um there's special credit and eric bloom actually got invited to go to the marvel bullpen um to uh preview the issues and talk to the editorial staff so um interesting uh, interesting uh little factoid about the band there how has marvel not brought namer to the screen yet they had so much time before they finally like introduced Aquaman on DC's side. Yeah, yeah. And if they had gotten Namor out there first, yeah. then it would be like, you know, right. everyone would be like, oh, Aquaman's just copying, which he technically was. Yeah. So, 
But if they if Namor was out there, then they could do they could do defenders. Could you imagine yeah. if they did Hulk, Doctor Strange, and and Namor? In a I movie? would love it. And now that, you know, I, I don't love that Disney's like buying up all the entertainment, but they have the rights to the Silver Surfer back now. Yeah. So maybe that's something that we'll see in phase four or five or whatever the hell. We're I have no now. idea. What <laughs> Who knows? I am so nervous what phase four is going to bring. We'll see. Well, it's definitely going to be Sam Wilson as Captain America, which I am all for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm for that. And I don't know. I, any, I guess maybe Rhodey's going to start being Iron Man, which I'd be fine with. There's precedent for that in the comics. I would... Um and this is this is not the term that you would use for this, but I think it would be cool if they hit, did some type of an. And I'm going to say it, but this isn't real PC, but uh, just for anyway, the if they did some type of Afro Avengers, yeah. where it was like Black Panther, um, Rhodey, the Falcon, oh yeah, uh, and bring bring Luke Cage from TV, yeah, and I would say bring in Blade, you know, he's bring he's, in Blade and bring in uh, bring in. Um, Black Panther's sister, what's her name? Oh, Shuri. Yeah. Shuri. See, Kyle thinks Shuri's going to be the next Iron Man. That I mean, she she's definitely. It's already established that she's smarter than Tony and yeah. and, uh, and Bruce put together. So that'd be that makes sense. Yeah, pretty great. Uh, okay, here we go. We're going on to an uh, album called uh, Mirrors, produced by Tom Worman. Yes. Yeah, so who is this? Is the first big producer they've used? Right. He produced uh, for Cheap Trick. He produced uh, In Color, Heaven Tonight, Dream Police. And he's done a. He's worked with Motley Crue, sadly, yep. but so now they want to. They want to. They want to get a producer. They want it. Yeah, I think. So. I think with um, Spectres, you know, when when that one didn't do as well, mm-hmm. or or if not better, I think they were like, okay, Sandy, let's let's try to actually have like a real, you know, slick polished producer come in and do something because. We need we need to stay on the radio. And Perlman has nothing to do with the songwriting on this That's album. Right. And or the production or yeah, I think, but it, it but it does not work either. It doesn't get them doesn't get them anything. Yeah, one one I think one problem that they have is that oftentimes the songs like that are their hits because there is actually a minor hit on this uh, on this album. Yeah, um, they just don't sound like the rest of the album. And I think the fans, you know, the people who like the singles, because they said they sold a lot of singles of you know the hit on this album, but no albums. Yeah. You know, I, I think this one only sold like two or 300,000. Um, and I don't know, like people call it their sellout record, but it's still weird. There's still some weird shit on here. Yeah. Uh, and I know Eric said he hated working with Tom Worman because he was like, well, you're not the guy that sang on the hits. So what, like, what are, what are you doing? Like, why are you here? Wow. Basically. Um, and I don't know, the band kind of, but then there's also just some stuff where like Al writes like what he thought was like a mean spirited, like parody of a Cars song and he didn't take it seriously and they released it as a single and it doesn't do anything. Which song is that? That's You're Not the One That I Was Looking For. Oh, okay. Um, and you know, it's just like, like take it seriously guys. Like let's actually try to get something done here. Uh, and not to say there aren't any good tracks. Yes, yeah, there's some good tracks. I've picked a few, but it does seem like not all of the band is interested in having like a like successful pop a polished record. producer. Yeah, and it's like let's just do that. Let's run with it. If we're if we're doing it, let's yeah, do it. Let's make this our mirage. Yeah. So what's your first track? Uh, this is the opening track. This is by uh, Joe Buck and then Richard Meltzer. Uh, this is obviously start at the beginning on this one. This is Doctor Music.
Ellen Foley on background vocals. Mm-hmm. This is um the the production is much slicker for sure. Yeah, and I don't I don't know that that's bad. No, I mean if uh if some of those earlier songs were produced this slick, maybe it would be a whole different ball game. I don't know. Yeah, well that's the thing is like art like bitching over selling out mm-hmm. is nonsense. Like that term doesn't mean anything. It never has. It's just like what what works and what doesn't work, you know? Yeah. If you want to make a pop album, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think your fans would get pissed at you. You just have to have, you know, the material to back it up. Yeah, yeah, true. You know? This, uh, I also had Dr. Uh, Doctor Music. Sure. So my next song is the song that we are referring to as a minor hit. Let me see where it, if it did anything. It's, I think it, it's super minor. I think it went into the top five. 40 maybe did it number 74 oh never mind (laughs) and uh what's funny is i didn't know that i i bought a best of uh blue oyster called at one point yeah and this was on there and as soon as it started i'm like whoa i know this song but i didn't know it by the title right of in the right i didn't know it but i knew it i was like oh my god i love this song i can't i didn't even know this was blue oyster called it was one of those moments Gotta get to the chorus. Of course. And as, as much as I love it, that is not great. Like, I wish I could wrap myself in the. It's clumsy. It's. Good. You are coming up with good terminology tonight. <laughs> Very clumsy. Um, but I do love that song. That seems, I don't know if they play that when they play out anymore. Yeah, that seems do. to me like one where they would bring out some stools, sit at the front of yep. the stage, and acoustic. That's exactly what That's they exactly do. That's exactly yeah. what they do? All right. They, they do this live. This might be the, I think this might be the only one of their um, like non-hits mm-hmm. that they have played every time I've seen them live. And I've seen them live like four or five times. All right, cool. Um, yeah, this is this is another one that, like, Alan Lanier, he he didn't really write a ton of music, and I think there's a song on Agents of Fortune that he sings lead vocals on, and that's the only one wow. in the history of the band that he did. But he actually was a pretty good writer, and he like probably could have written some some hits for them if maybe he know. got strong armed into. I'm sure that's what it was. No, we're doing it. We're fine. Exactly. Keep yeah. your songs. But I don't know. I feel like if somebody else had just been like, hey, why don't we change that to with me and just like rewrite a couple of yeah, things here and yeah. there? <laughs> yep. I feel like it would have been a much stronger song. 
But it's beautiful. The yeah, it is. It's really nice. Yeah, and again, I I keep having to say that the band is still solid right now. Yeah, same guys, still the same lineup. Uh, I really feel if these guys had worked with Jack Douglas, something like proper, like as a producer, I think uh, that would have been a good fit. Oh yeah, definitely. Or if they'd hooked up with Martin Birch earlier, or mm-hmm. you know, or even if they'd gotten like at this point. Like the Eagles are almost done, so get Bill Simzik over here. Yeah, you know it's um, there's so many producers that that they never got a chance to work with. Yeah, um, what's your next tune? Uh, this is one uh, that uh, Buck and his wife Sandra wrote uh, together about the Roswell incident of 1947. Oh boy, uh, I'm gonna have you start real late on this one at four minutes and four seconds. Wait, the song's only four minutes and seven seconds long. No, I'm kidding. This is 626. Four minutes and seven seconds? Yes. All right, let me take Or four it. minutes and four seconds, I'm four sorry. Four minutes and four. Very meticulous. <laughs> four minutes and two. Hold on. There we go. We run in circles. Our days are numbered. Every night I look away to the heavens and I nice guitar work there yeah this this I, I i like this song i just wish it were like maybe a minute or two shorter um it's yeah. got a really good riff to like start out mm-hmm. but then it, it just goes into like some kind of like proggy almost like pink floydy yeah like noodling and this is around the same time that the wall came out so i wonder if that had something to do with it but yeah that was called the vigil um and it's about roswell all right this album does not uh it's i mean it's it charts no not Poorly, the album number forty-four. Yeah, uh, Spectres went to number forty-three, so this isn't. But it doesn't. Uh, no certifications, right? I think it, it drops off pretty quick yeah. after, probably after people discover that there's not really anything that sounds like in the yeah. on there. And it, I think they said it did like two hundred fifty thousand or three hundred thousand or something, which you know that's not terrible, but eh, a lot is, of people have to split those royalties. Is there a Blue Oyster Cult book out that you can? Is there? Have any of the members written a book, or has anyone written the definitive Blue Oyster Cult? Yeah, there, there's a book called Agents of Fortune that Martin Popoff wrote. Oh, that guy writes um, a million books. He really does, yeah. And um, sometimes they're great, and sometimes... Well, this one has a lot of information, but literally what he did was he interviewed them like three or four different times, and, okay. he, and he updated it like each time. And then he also pulled a bunch of interviews that they did at the time that okay. the stuff came out, and he just kind of stitched it all together in like roughly a chronological order. And then he also kind of mixes in his like musings on the quality of their music too. And it's a little incoherent, but there are some really good like gems in there and you kind of get some insight into the way the band worked. But that's probably the only like anything close to definitive. And I would love a, you know, like even if Buck and Eric did something together, I would love that. But or I really or, just want to hear Or if uh, Bruce Dickinson, who produced uh, <laughs> Don't Fear the Reaper, if he would. <laughs> yeah. 
Now this uh, now for the the past three albums that we've uh, been checking out, I've known songs on all those albums, mm-hmm. and then there's this one. I I have never heard one song off of Cultosaurus Erectus, right? And uh, I like this album cover. Yeah, I I like the title of the album. It's silly, but I yeah. I like it. Yeah, it's cool. And I did not know that Martin Birch produced this. I thought he only produced uh, Fire of Unknown Origin. I had no idea. Yeah. That he came in on this album. Well, this was the one where they decided, the and Sandy was still managing them at this time too, and he was like, okay, so you guys didn't didn't really have much success trying to go in the pop direction, so let's get like a metal guy to come yeah. in. And this isn't really a metal album no, at all. No, But it definitely has like a little bit more of like an edge to it, and it's a little bit creepier. Um, And yeah, it's it's... I don't know. And it's still, and like, it's still at this point, like Sandy's really not doing, and it's partially because he like had moved to California yeah. by this point and he's working with all these other bands, but he's not really that involved with, with much like in terms of songwriting or producing at this point. And so at this point he could actually say, well, they're not really making it without me working with them. You know what I mean? Cause they're right. Nothing's not too much is happening. But the thing too, is that like they weren't necessarily making it when he was there well, either, true, you know, true. that's the thing. It's really easy to say like, Oh, Buck, like the, the one song that Buck wrote entirely by himself got them into the top 20 right. status, uh, in, you know, and then all the albums that he'd been producing prior, none of them had gotten certified yeah. by that point yet. Cause, uh, secret treaties doesn't go gold until like 94 or something. Yeah. So it's, it's really nice after the fact to say, Oh, see, they started doing better and better than they did really well. And then I left and they started doing worse and worse. But, I'm I'm not so sure, Sandy <laughs> Perlman. I'm not sure if I, I don't think correlation equals causation in that case. And by this point, they've already kicked Krugman to the curb too. Yeah, yeah, he's gone. Well, you and I both have this song, so I'm going to play it. Deadline. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, because the Tom Worman could, it's almost close to like a little generic, but there's something about the way this is all mixed together that sounds uh, sounds pretty cool. Oh, yeah. For an album that doesn't have any songs that people know. Yeah, really. I don't, I don't really think there are any songs no. that people know nope. on here. I mean, unless you're a hardcore fan or something. Yeah, like they probably don't play anything off this live. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. I think there were... Yeah, I think, and I've seen them quite a few times, but I'm trying... Do they play the same set list every time? No. They I, don't? Okay. 
They they um, feel it because that that's easily they could easily be a band that is locked into the same set list. Right. Uh, well, the first time I saw them, it was it was around the 40th anniversary of the debut, so they played a, a lot of tracks from uh, from the first album, mm-hmm. uh, which I remember liking. I thought it sounded a lot of it sounded better than it it does on the the record. Yeah. Um, and then they would do like um, Reaper and Burning for You as like an encore. Um, yeah, I think I think they've they've really mixed it up. Um, I think Eric prefers to do stuff from like the earlier albums when mm-hmm. he was more involved, and yeah. then Buck prefers to do stuff from like their mid period or later albums. They don't really do hardly any of their '80s stuff though, apart from like a handful of tracks from um, uh, Fire of Unknown Origin, and then. And then Some, they don't touch those other albums? I think they've done Shooting Shark live once or twice. When That's I've sad. Seen them, but yeah. All right. Well, what's your next one? Well, uh, this one is uh, by uh, Eric Buck and Richard Meltzer. I'll have you start this one at 26 seconds. Apparently, it's just about being like surrounded and entrapped by hill people. I guess like oh, geez. <laughs> the hills have eyes style. Yeah. Uh, and this is similarly titled, This is Lips in the Hills. And you said 26 seconds? Yes, sir. funny birch hasn't even started working with iron maiden at this point that's right just like uh they're they're not even real they're just kind of getting it going that's right yeah they they worked with just some rando guy that emi got them yep okay what's my next song off cultosaurus erectus i have two i don't know which one i'm gonna play here i'm gonna go with uh i'll go with um also, it seems a lot a lot of songs, not on this album, but it seems like a lot of songs are about vampires. Yeah, they like vampires opinion. a lot. Yeah. Like in this one, Hungry Boys, I think might be about vampires. I think so. All right, here we go. There's nothing about that song that says Blue Oyster Cult to me. It's just like, it's just a song. Well, I mean, that's kind of the thing I said earlier about there being so many cooks in the kitchen. I think that is a a big part of why they weren't as successful is because there's not really, it's going to start getting more and more important for there to be like one guy who's in like the front man of the band. Yeah. You know, Chicago ran into that problem. A lot of groups like that were popular in the seventies had that problem with the eighties and 
I don't know. I just don't know that a democratic band works. You know, I really don't. I, I, li- I like the idea of everyone in the band being an equal songwriting partner and like having a say, but it's just a mess and you get albums and I love Cultural Source Records. I think it's one of my favorite BOC albums, mm-hmm. but you get stuff where there's just not a ton of like consistency yeah. it, like in terms of tone. And that's going to be a big problem for them their whole career is that there's a lot of songs that sound great like individually, but they don't flow as an album. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. But they, uh, they're smart enough to use Martin Birch again. Oh, yeah. So we get uh, Fire of Unknown Origin. I like this album cover, too. Oh, yeah, it's great. I think that's actually like the Blue Oyster Cult, or at least what oh, somebody imagined oh, they would look oh, like. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, this one, I have a vinyl copy of this that's awaiting signatures. So That's the one I got signed. I'm hoping to uh, see them the next time. They, they, they play the Canyon Club all the time. They come through and yeah. play a bunch of venues. I've just never seen them. They came to my college... I I went to a small um, Catholic liberal arts college in uh, Latrobe, Pennsylvania, St. Vincent College. They came my freshman year, so that would have been, uh, that would have been like the fall of 82. Oh, okay. And I didn't go. Oh, boy. They played in the gymnasium. That would have, I don't know why I didn't go. I wish I would have gone now. I'm sure that would have been amazing. I, I know. And I mean, this album was already out, so they had you know, all the, all the songs I would have known. Right. But, um, yeah, I didn't go, but a lot of the town folk came in. Sure. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Are you okay? Did you hear the Colts playing up at uh, St. Vincent college? We got to go up there. Of course. So, uh, uh, I'm just going to, I'll start it off. Sure. I'm going to start it off. I'm going to play this. This is my favorite blue oyster cult song. It's just, it is. Yeah. And, um, and it's a big hit and I, I love it. It's burning for you. Everything about it. Perfect. Yeah. Um, it's mixed so great too. Like yeah. you can hear everyone. Everyone's in the mix. Yeah. Uh, it's got a good riff. It's got the drums are great. Yeah. That's the thing when I listen to these first, when I listen to these first Blue Oyster Cult albums, I was expecting to hear some germ of Burning for You or Don't Fear the Reaper right. in those albums, and it wasn't there for me at all. Like I'm like, what? This isn't what I know is Blue Oyster Cult. Right. So. Um, yeah, pretty. That's a great yeah, tune. Yeah, I, I mean, I love that song. That is. Did you think I would bring that? Is that why you didn't bring yes, it? Okay. Yes. 
I was I was sure that you would because yeah. I wanted to. So I was like, okay, well, it's it's, it's uh, hard yeah. not to bring that. That's one of the most perfect songs they've ever done. It's yeah. the lyrics are great. I know I think Meltzer wrote most of those lyrics. Um, and then Buck's singing is great. Yes. And then there's like five or six hooks just in that like mm-hmm. bit you played. There's like that opening riff, mm-hmm. and then and there's then like that, that like that guitar that's that great like, like stinging part. Yep. Yeah. And this was like really big on MTV too in the early days. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is funny because they, they were so desperate for content in those early days. It's literally just Buck like wearing like some kind of weird like gold uh, like jumpsuit. Yeah, they around. only have one, two, three, four, five, six. They only have seven music videos. Yeah. They got the Marshall Plan. I don't even know what that song is. Oh, that's from uh, Cultosaurus. I have no idea what that song is. Then they have I'm Burning For You, Joan Crawford, which is hysterical. It looks like yeah. they're in some apartment complex. Yeah. And they have all the cables running to their amps and stuff. Yeah. Like they wouldn't have needed that in the video. They're lip syncing. <laughs> um, Take me away and shooting shark mm-hmm. and uh, dancing in the ruins and astronomy. Yeah, which I've never seen it, the astronomy video. But anyway, yeah, they they only have seven music videos too. Crazy. Uh, okay, so what is your first song um, on Fire of Unknown Origin? Well, it's the uh, the title track here. I'll have you start at the beginning on that one. All right, here we go. their highest charting album went to number 24 yeah yeah here's here's what we were uh, earlier when we were talking about the remasters they stopped at specters i understand why they wouldn't do mirrors i understand maybe why they wouldn't do call to source erectus but how they didn't do fire of unknown origin doesn't make any sense to me i don't know there's I... a there's a company called um culture factory usa and they did they released they remastered all of these and they're in mini album sleeves mm-hmm. and I tried to buy this on Amazon and it's sold out and on their website it's sold out and I don't know if they're going to do another run of it or not but um, I can't believe that they didn't remaster this album yeah I'm not sure what the thinking was there I don't either it seems like they dropped the ball I this would have been like one of the first ones they should have remastered I wonder if it was a rights thing or maybe Martin Birch didn't want to like let someone mess with his mix I don't know I don't know either but man yeah, you would think. Because the CD you buy right now, it's the original type issue that they... Right. With the Columbia with the red lettering on the spine. Yeah, that's the version I have. Yeah. All right, what's my next song? Uh, I had Fire of Unknown Origin too, but I thought you might bring that one. So I, I have... Uh, and I love Joan Crawford, but I've played it on the show many times. Mm-hmm. So this is a Veteran of the Psychic Wars. Oh, great song. From Heavy Metal Soundtrack also. Yes. You see me now, veteran of a thousand psychic wars. I've been living. 
not sure that there's anything left to me Don't let these shakes go on It's time we had a break from it It's time we had some leave We've been living in the flames We've been eating up our brains Also, everyone's back for this album. We got Patti Smith is in there, mm-hmm. uh, Meltzer, Perlman. Yeah. They're all, all the old people are, are back in, and the band's still the same. Mm-hmm. Carla DeVito does background vocals on a, a song called Soul Survivor. And uh, this, this, is my, this is my favorite. Yeah, I think mine too. Blue Oyster Cut album. Yeah. And I, I think th- a lot of people would say that. I think so, yeah. I mean, the, the earlier albums really have their charm for me, but when you get Martin Birch doing the production, mm-hmm. you know, it's just it's just great. I mean, this this is the one I started with and kind of worked my way back. Um, and this is their eighth studio album. Right. It's like, oh, now it all comes together. Right. You know what I mean? Finally. Kind of like how Judas Priest didn't really have a huge commercial breakthrough until their eighth and album either. Mario Speedwagon, too. Their eighth right. one was uh, Tuna Fish. Exactly. Tuna Piano, but you can't Tuna Fish. It's crazy. It's amazing that the record labels back then gave you so many chances. Because if you're not selling albums, then you're not making any money for the label. Touring doesn't go to the label. Yeah. I, I, I guess the thinking is like we we understand that it takes time to like break the Midwest or yeah. what, whatever like your market's going to be. Yeah, yeah. But, or, or I don't know, the idea that like we'll, we'll like make them, well, I don't know, I guess maybe like if you, if you do an advance on the band and yeah. then they don't make that back in album sales and they do have to pay back. Pay yeah, that's, and that's true. How that's they do, true. That's why they do so much touring. I think that's part of it. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's the, the funny thing about Veteran of the Psychic Wars, which is a great song, that's, yeah, there were two other songs on the album that were specifically written to be on the heavy metal soundtrack. That was uh, Heavy Metal, The Black and Silver, and then uh, Vengeance, The Pact, which was actually about the white-haired girl with the sword that's like the hero of the second part of that movie. And the producers of Heavy Metal preferred Veteran of the Psychic Wars, even though it doesn't have anything specifically in the <laughs> lyrics about the movie. Well, the movie's not so cohesive either. No, that movie is is all over the place. <laughs> it's got a great soundtrack, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have another song off this album. I do, yeah. Um, another song about vampires. Uh, this one, uh, I have you starting at 23 seconds in. Um, this is uh, Eric and then uh, John Trivers and Liz Myers. This is After Dark. You say how many seconds? 23 seconds. Closes out the fire of unknown origin. Mm-hmm. All right, so now we're moving on. They start. They work with another big producer now, right? Yeah, Bruce Fairbairn. Yeah, is, is that how you say it? Fairbairn. That's how I Fairbairn. always. Fairbairn. Yeah, that's how I've always. He said it. produced uh, Bon Jovi. 
Mm-hmm. He did permanent Le- vacation by Aerosmith. Yeah, I think he did. He did. He actually he did permanent vacation, pump, oh, and yeah. get a grip. Okay. Uh, the first th- three or four Loverboy albums. Mm-hmm. Um, he produced a Yes album eventually. It just you know he was he was a go to. He was big time. Yep. You know he was like he's the slick guy to go to. So they uh, they use him on the album. Yeah. The Revolution by Night. You know what? Like in Cultosaurus Erectus and Revolution by Night, they actually like use the umlaut in, right. in, on a letter. In They should have done that every time. Yeah, you would think they would. Yeah. Any vowel, just throw it in Any there. Any vowel, yeah. just throw it. And a lot of these albums have an O in it. Agent of Fortune, yeah. Mutation, Mirrors, you know, uh, Origin. I mean, I, I don't know what the, I don't know what decided if they did it or not. But uh, they did not do it. Yeah, that would have been cool. And I know I, I like that they, you know, they they have that little their little symbol, yeah. you know, in, in a lot of stuff. Like it's really subtle in yeah. Cultosaurus Erectus because there's a literal like uh, uh, spaceship that's flying past, mm-hmm. and you can see it on like real small on there. I, I like that. So that would have been like another another cool thing to do. Also, they, they between these two studio albums, they release uh, Extraterrestrial Live. Right. Yeah. That's that's actually a really good. Yeah, live it's not bad. Too. That one's not Pretty bad good. at all. Um, and they also fired Albert Bouchard. He's gone. Yeah, he's gone. Who's the drummer here? Uh, Rick Downey was his drum tech, so they just replaced him with him on the tour. And Aldo Nova plays a guitar and synthesizer on a song. Randy Jackson mm-hmm. is a bass on Shooting Shark. Hey, yep. dog. And um, <laughs> yeah. Sandy Perlman is credited with a... Well, it says mixing, uncredited. Mm-hmm. Sandy Perlman. Okay. So... Um, What's your first song off of? Uh, I like this album too. I like this album cover too. Yeah, it's a cool album cover. It is a cool album cover. Um, well, this one uh, you, you already referenced it. Um, I'll have you start at sixteen seconds on this one. Uh, this is uh, one that Aldo Nova uh, co-wrote with Eric and then played uh, synth and guitar on. This is uh, "Take Me Away." Yeah, I like that song a lot. I think yeah. that's a great track. And that was, like you said, one of the music videos that they did, and it's kind of like a fun, like ET spoof or yeah. something almost. And I, I had also picked, uh, I had also picked that song. And then uh, my other song is uh, Patty Smythe. Not Patty, Patty Smythe. Patty Smythe. Wait a minute. Damn it! I'm so <laughs> mad I said that. You can edit it out. <laughs> I might edit it out. I just have to remember that I said it. Okay, so the next song I picked is uh, is Shooting Shark, written with uh, Buck and Patti Smith. She's still hanging on. Mm-hmm. She's still around. Still likes the band. This is Shooting Shark. 
seven minutes and 11 seconds. There's a, uh, there's a song on this album co-written by Broadway Blotto. Yeah. Is, was he in the band Blotto? I think so. It's so strange that they were, they seem like they'll work with anyone. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, it does seem like they're, they're not being picky about who they collaborate with at any point in their careers, but especially on these, some of these like eighties albums. Yeah. 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 Oh, you had shooting shark also. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, Take Me Away and Shooting Shark are like the only tracks on this album that I like at all. Yeah, I, uh, my third one was Eyes on Fire. We'll just hear a little bit of that since we both had the same two songs. It was just because I wanted to have a third. Sure. Some guy named Greg Winter wrote this, yeah. outside writer. Yeah. They didn't go that, uh, they didn't go with like getting like, uh, you know, like Diane Warren or anyone. Right. They didn't pull in any heavy hitters in the songwriting. Uh, you know, you bring in Bruce Fairbairn, so you think, hey, why don't we get Bon Jovi to write a song for it? You know what, I, you know you what I'm think, saying? Yeah, get Desmond Child in there. Desmond Child, or Jim perfect. Jim Valance or somebody, yeah. But no, not at all. And then we have, uh, so we're moving on. Yeah, I... I think that it's maybe a little bit overproduced that album, but mm-hmm. it's really just, I mean, it's, it's that there aren't any good songs. It's, that's the problem with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I really like shooting shark a lot. I think the music video is a lot of fun. Yep. Um, Randy Jackson playing bass on that. Cause, uh, Joe Bouchard didn't know how to do slap and pop. Um, and he said Randy was really nice and taught him how to do it afterwards. But I don't know. I mean, there's like two songs that are, that are, cool and everything else is pretty disposable yeah, for me. yeah you're right it's just uh who cares and then yeah and then going into the next album is like when the lineup really starts to fall apart yep and the uh this is a, I, I always like this album cover though yeah it's a cool album club cover. ninja and sandy perlman is back producing oh yeah by himself very smug about it too for the first time ever by himself a mm-hmm. solo sandy perlman yeah who's in there we got eric bloom buck dharma Joe Bouchard, and then I can't pronounce this guy's name, Tommy Zonchek. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Jimmy Wilcox. Mm -hmm. And then you've got like uh, Kenny Aronson playing session bass and Mm -hmm. Phil Grande playing extra guitars. It's just. And uh, Tommy Price playing drums. Right. Howard Stern, the opening of When the War Comes, and that's a a sequel stinkeroo for me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because Howard just is like all like. Oh, yeah. Isn't he related to one? I think he's. I think Eric Bloom is his cousin, I think. Yeah, I think that's what it is. All right, so they're like, oh, we'll finally get Howard in there. Yeah, finally. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? 
What took them so long? (laughs) So, um, let me see what you have. All right. Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, we have the exact same two songs. I'm sh- yeah, what else is there? The exact same two songs. So, okay, so. That's fine. <laughs> Dancing in the Ruins. Yep. And for me, this has the same type of vibe as Burning For You does, kind of. Oh, yeah, it's a ripoff of Burning For You, but it's a good one. It's a ripoff of Burning For You, yeah. Here it is, Dancing in the Ruins. It's such a ripoff. Yeah. This is, this is written by two outside guys, Larry Gottlieb and Jason Scallon. I don't even know who those guys are. Yeah, Buck said that they just, they submitted a tape to the Blue Oyster Cult publishing company. Okay. I don't know how, why Buck doesn't have some kind of credit on this, because this is like so clearly a know, ripoff. stolen from Burning For You. It's like yep. two guys who were fans of BOC were like, oh, let's see if we can get them to record. It's so funny how independently we, we pick the same two songs on a bunch of these, because there's not a lot of good songs. Right, exactly. So this next one we both picked is written by Jim Carroll and uh, Buck Dharma. Mm-hmm. It's called Perfect Water. Let's hear this. Only two songs on this album that we like. Mm-hmm. Perfect Doesn't sound like something that could be on Tower Windows by Rush. Absolutely. And this isn't even great. No. It's just we had to pick the second one. Right. Yeah. yeah, just, um, yep. I don't know. I mean, I'm not necessarily going to say that relying on outside writers was like a mistake. I think it's just maybe the the types of outside writers they, they were using weren't, on, yeah, yeah. weren't great. Because like, I don't know. I don't really think like overly polished production can make like a good album bad, but it can't make a bad album good. No, you it know? can't. No, <laughs> that's true. That's true. So now we move on. I remember seeing this album cover. It's a cool cover. Yeah, it is. But I've ne- I never heard, I didn't know anything about this. So this, one, this was like Cultosaurus Erectus. I was like, oh, I'm excited to listen to this one because right. I've seen this album cover all my life and I've never heard any of it. And how do you pronounce this? Imaginos. Imaginos. Well, that's very pretentious. Well, wait until you hear the story behind this because it's going to get more pretentious. Co-produced by Sandy Perlman and Al Bouchard because this was supposed to be an Al Bouchard solo album. Right. And, the, and Columbia was like, 
we literally will not release this unless you get the other guys in BOC to come do this. <laughs> it's three years after uh, Club Ninja. Mm-hmm. So do you have more? Do you have more backstory than this? Yeah, I'll try to keep it brief because this is like a nuts. Well, let me get this sting ready. Okay. <laughs> in case you get crazy with it. Right. So this is a crazy thing. Apparently, this is like a series of stories that Sandy had been working on since like the late 60s. And he oh, called it like... Fantastic. It was this. It was the most pretentious thing. He called, it was a, a story that he called the soft doctrines of Imaginos, which means nothing. And it's literally just his manifesto about like how his explanation for why the world is the way it is is because like the actual, a group called the Blue Oyster Cult who are like alien, like Lovecraftian, like fish alien people like uh, made this guy who they called Imaginos their agent on earth and he like used magic powers to bring technology into the world and to control like the human destiny and evolution and stuff. It's nuts. And, and so when, and he had been trying to get blue oyster cult to record it ever since like the mid seventies. And they were like, get the fuck away. We're not going to do this. (laughs) And he still like, well, I'm not still, well, maybe he still does. I don't know. He might be saying it at hell or wherever, (laughs) but up until his death, he was like, if blue oyster cult had released this in 1978 or 79, as I wanted them to, they, this would be like a masterpiece. Okay. And I don't know. So he claims that, um, the record company made all of the, like, the track he made him bring in a bunch of session musicians albert bouchard was going to sing lead on all of them and they didn't have enough confidence in his singing voice um they wouldn't release it unless it was a blue oyster cult album uh and then they moved the song order around so whatever story there is it wouldn't make any sense even if it was in the order that he wanted it to be but it like doesn't make it extra doesn't make sense there's pages and pages on this on wikipedia oh yeah of course it's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. And the thing, too, is that Buck and Eric are like, we did this as a favor to Sandy, as a thank you for, like, helping us get together and giving us vision in the early days. But we considered ourselves, like, done with him after this. And it's a really dishonest album in a lot of ways because it credits it be- as being, like, a reunion of the classic. Yeah, lineup. it says Eric, Albert, Joe, Alan, and, and Donald. Right. But it's not. But then you look at what they're playing, and Joe plays, like, piano on a few parts and does some backing vocals. That's it. And look at the list of extra musicians who are in there. That's the people who are making this album. Yeah, and tons then, of people. Yeah. Even Joe Satriani. Yeah, exactly. Robbie Krieger, Auto Nova. But the thing is, they, uh, you know, they're singing on it, and you can really fool the public if the voices they're hearing are right. the actual singers that are in the band. Right. So. Yeah, and I think this is the album that, like anyone who wants to argue that Blue Oyster Cult was a metal band, this is like the album that they point to a lot, because mm-hmm. this is like the most like self-consciously metal sounding album, like the way it's produced and like some of the vocals and like, and, and they had like a lot of different like shredding guitarists playing on it. But I don't know. I feel like it's a little bit of a cheat of an album because it's not quite like, you know what it's advertised yeah. as. Now the, the name blue oyster cult sounds cool. Yes. In a second, I'm going to make it sound not cool by replacing two of the words in it. Are you ready? Sure. Red lobster cult. <laughs> not so cool uh i mean it i honestly i i could see an alternate universe where red lobster cult was the band and the blue oyster was the fast food franchise (laughs) true right exactly and sandy perlman also envisioned that yeah that's true (laughs) so what songs did you pick off of this right um this is one that um uh 
Sandy Perlman and Al Bouchard wrote. I think this is one of the few that Buck actually has a songwriting contribution on. I'll have you start at the beginning on this. This is I Am The One You Warned Me Of. And I also picked this one. Yeah. What's funny was when I first dropped the digital needle on this album and I heard this song first, I was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> right. This is going to be pretty good because that's the first song on the album. And then not so much. Yeah. Uh, so I had that song. And then the other one I have is uh, Lay. In- well, at this point. So the next song I have is, am I saying it right? Lay Invisibles? Invisibles. <laughs> Invisibles. I actually really like that song. Yeah, that's I think a good it's one. pretty cool. It's a strong one. And you didn't pick that, so we're going to to hear a third song off of this. Yeah, I, I don't know. This one's maybe a little bit more of a guilty pleasure than one I actually like really enjoy. But um, you just like this really long title. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll have you start this one at twenty eight seconds. And um, you get to say the title. Sure, I will. Um, so this one is supposed to be about uh, Imaginos who's been transformed into Desdenova by the Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> and he's now introducing alien technology to the world to control the affairs of man. Uh, and this is the siege and investiture of Baron von Frankenstein's castle at Viseria. Of course. <laughs> what else would it be called? pretty wild too yeah and that one's got some pretty fun soloing by joe satriani in it too uh and this is 
not sung by anybody in the band. This is a session musician named Joe Sarasano. Yeah, why is that? I think they just wanted someone who could be as like, I don't know, like who could be like do that like kind of late 80s mm-hmm. metal yeah like histrionics and this is he, he was like a, a really successful like jingle writer and and singer based out of new jersey that they just picked up mm. 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 that's what we got yep okay now we move on many 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 years because yeah. this album tanks it does really badly yeah. nobody likes it and because blue oyster cult kind of threw in their lot with pearlman for this they ended up having to pay columbia records back for like the advance because they didn't even make back their advance on getting this album made so they wow. were pretty pissed off and they were like done working with the, uh, al bouchard for good joe bouchard's gone by this point so, yeah, this is 10 years later 1998 yeah. Yeah, and they did like a couple of things in between. Like they had a couple of uh, songs on the soundtrack to a horror movie called Bad Channels that mm-hmm. nobody saw. Uh, I'm sure nobody listened to the soundtrack. <laughs> and then they did they did that thing that sometimes bands do where they like re-recorded, yeah. like which I hate, but I think it's like a rights thing or something. I don't know. But they, they released an album called Cult Classic that was like their 90s lineup re-recording classics. So then which, they can sell those versions for commercials and stuff, I think right. is how that goes. It's never good when that happens. It's never good. It's never good. And I always like when the band says something like, uh, yeah, we finally got to do it the right way, the, the way we wanted <laughs> yeah. to always do it. No, that's not true. You liars. Yeah, yeah. you're lying. <laughs> Even Jeff Lynne recorded all the ELO stuff, and I don't understand that because he wrote them. I don't know. It's ridiculous. I have so many Journey, Blondie, Sticks, Kiss. I mean, so many. Oh, yeah. It's terrible. Now, I don't have this album. Right. I don't have the other one either, so it's all you. Oh, okay. It's all you on um, these two. Yeah, I've got these on uh, on CD. Um, this is sort of a weird thing. So they, they they got signed to CMC, which is kind of like um, this is the company that Kyle and I talked about, where the album covers are shit. They're 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 always bad because they won't spring for like good people. No, um, it's yeah. like someone's kid is, as Kyle would say, took a Photoshop class, <laughs> right? Yeah, I think there's even some kind of like smart ass nickname that I think it's like CMC. Someone there's a joke that like CMC stands for like Classic Music Cemetery or something, where like <laughs> where like older rockers who can't get signed to a major label go to die. Yeah. Um, so by this point, like it's it's Eric, it's Buck, it's um, Lanier. He's back, uh, but then they've got um, uh, Danny Miranda on bass, who's their bass player now, but he was gone for like some period of time in between now and then okay. uh and then um chuck Berge and bobby rondinelli on drums um and then uh they fell in with this uh cyberpunk science fiction writer named john shirley who was like their main lyrical collaborator because they still don't okay. really like to write lyrics that much um so this yeah so this is from the the, the album that comes out in 1998 called heaven forbid um i'll have you start this track at 42 seconds um, this is a song that Eric Buck and John Shirley wrote uh, about mortality called Cold Gray Light of Dawn. just read there's a song on this album called still burning that's a sequel song to burning for you 
Yeah. What's that sound like? We don't have that, though. It's fine. Does it sound like a sequel song? Not really. I mean... It's calling it a sequel song. It's making me angry. Well, I mean, I think they, they like some of the lyrical stuff is still there, but it's not, it doesn't really sound that much like it, and it's, I don't know, it's fine, but it's not, it doesn't really remind me that much of Burning For You, to be honest. Let me see if I can find it on iTunes, although I don't think it's on here. This album's called Heaven Forbid. Mm-hmm. Really Heaven, bad album cover. Heaven Forbid we get someone who can do artwork. <laughs> To do this album cover. Yeah, this is, this is not anywhere to be found. All right. That yeah. song didn't sound too bad, though. Yeah. I, you know, these last two albums that they did, they're not, they don't sound great production. Well, they're okay, but Eric and Buck uh, co-produced these themselves, um, you know, and it's fine. I'm sure they didn't have great resources yeah. to, like, record and mix, so they're, they're doing the best they can. Um, the album cover's shitty. How good can the rest of the company be? <laughs> well, that's a good point. <laughs> you would think if that's the one thing you don't have money on, then what else can you do? Yeah, at least put a nice, uh, at least wrap the package up nicely so people will want to buy it. Yeah, there you go. And at this point, like, let's let's get a like a photo of the two of them, like you know, the three yeah. of them hanging out or something, doing something. I don't like this cover at all. It's disgusting. Yeah, it's really bad. It's like a guy. It's weird. It's like the guy's face is kind of burned or melted. Yeah. And then is that who's is that an actress like screaming in the back? Is that look? It looks like I don't know who it is. It's yeah. terrible. Yeah, it's very bad. All right. Um, but I have a, a and this is a pretty unique song. It's it's like a lot more like acoustic and a little bit bluesy. Um, this is by uh, Buck and uh, John Shirley. It's about paranormal activity. Uh, this is a song called Real World. From the top. Mm-hmm. Guess that that was um, Blue Oyster Cult in them, right? Yeah, years. it really doesn't it sound. Doesn't, it sounds good though. It's good, but it, it's just it's like a real departure from them. But I say at this point, you know, if you're on an independent label and you're you know in your fifties and you're never going to get the glory days back, then you might as well you know just do some things that make you happy for you, yeah. right? <laughs> the glory days are not coming back. Um, so yeah, this album doesn't really. I don't think it was expected to, but even by the standards, I think that of like coming out on the CMC label. This doesn't yeah. really do nothing. Um, and then three years later, they release another one. This album yeah. covers terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's marginally better. I would say than heaven forbid, just cause it's not as disgusting, but it's still kind of like curse of the hit. It's like a guy pulling a rickshaw in the desert. Yeah. I don't know what the thinking is behind that. And it's I called really curse of the hidden mirror. Apparently that's like some kind of, that's some kind of Sandy Perlman thing from like way back in the day that they decided to recycle, but it doesn't really match what's on the cover. No, it's, it's frustrating because Curse of the Hidden Mirror could be a cool album cover. Yeah. And I'm surprised they even put Mirror in the title after the debacle that was Mirrors. <laughs> well, what are they, I'm sure they would love to go back to the days of selling three or 400,000 albums. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> of Mirrors days. 
Um, wow. But yeah, but so John Shirley is back for this one as, as like doing the lyrics uh, on most of uh, the songs here. Um, it's Eric, Buck, Alan. Uh-huh. And they've Danny. got um, Bobby Rondinelli is the only drummer on this mm-hmm. one. And I think Danny Miranda is doing bass yes. still. Yeah. Yes, he is. Um, and George Clinton does some background vocals on some song. I wonder if I feel like that. I saw that credit in the, in the liner notes, and I don't feel like it's the same George Clinton. I feel like that's just the name of like. Well, if if you're if you're if your name's George Clinton and you're going to do something in music and you're not the George Clinton or the George Clinton, right? Then change your name. Be Clinton yeah. Clinton George, or just put like a, that works. I do like Clinton that. George. Okay, or just put a middle initial in there. Yeah, you know. <laughs> no, I'm George M. Clinton. <laughs> there you go. Um, so yeah, I'll have you start this one at 22 seconds in. Um, this is one that Eric and uh, Buck and John Shirley wrote together. It's like about Lovecrafty and stuff. This is The Old God's Return. sounds good too yeah Yeah. i I think that's one of the ones that actually sounds like a good version of some of the stuff they were doing on their early albums um i mean still not like not not doesn't quite have the pop of like a good like studio or producer but it's still pretty good and eric's voice sounds really good considering he was in his like mid probably even late 50s by this point i think he was born in 44 so he's probably like almost 60 by this point Yeah. yeah um and yeah, and then the last song I have is one that um, Buck and John Shirley co-wrote. Uh, I'll have you start this one from the beginning. It's supposedly about um, sort of the Eastern philosophies of being content with your life. This is called Pocket. I have some new blue oyster cult news. Uh-huh. You ready for this? I'm ready. Maybe you know it. Maybe you don't know it. I think I do, but I'll see. It says, uh, this is from April 8th. Uh-huh. About a month ago, Eric Bloom confirms that the band is planning to release its first new album since 2001's Curse of the Hidden Mirror. Yes, I have heard this. But it doesn't sound like they recorded it yet. It just sounds like he's like, we're going to release an album. Yeah. But I don't know if they've done it yet. I have to say, I have heard them mention that they've been working on a new album two of the last times that I've seen them. Um, and the last time I saw them was last year, and I saw them in 
2017 before that. So hmm. I, if they maybe have been, I, I wonder if maybe they've been writing it, but they haven't actually recorded, recorded it yet. It, yeah. It might all be like done and demoed and they just haven't actually laid down the tracks. But yeah. I don't know. It, it, what's interesting it seems is early to announce it yeah. to the public. I would think that if you actually like had like, it's definitely coming out this year. Yeah. I would think that you wouldn't announce it until you were absolutely sure, but like it's done see. packaged, mixed everything. Yeah. But also like, Recording in your own studio in 2001 is very different from doing it now. So it probably, yeah. it has the potential to sound really, really good, yeah, yeah. you know, if they record it now. And I, I think Eric still sounds, Buck sounds, you could kind of hear it on, on these albums. He sounds a little strained maybe, but Eric sounds great still now. So how is Buck live? Oh, he's great. Okay. You know, he's, I mean, he's this tiny guy. He's like five foot two or three or something. He's so tiny. He looks good in the band photo. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, um, and will you buy that new album when it comes out? Sure, of course. And um, maybe they'll work with Sandy Perlman. Oh, they can't. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> I'm sure they'll just produce it themselves. Yeah, at this point, I don't see them, you know, I think they're pretty set in their ways. Or yeah. they're, they're both in their 70s now. I'm sure they are not interested in, like, letting somebody else tell them what to do, even right. if that would be for the best. <laughs> well, look, Nate, I enjoyed once again spending time with you. Oh, yeah, it was a blast. Thank I enjoyed you. taking a deep dive into a band that I only knew their hits. Unfortunately, my verdict is I still only like the hits. <laughs> Maybe a handful of few tracks here and there that I, that I uh, resonated with me. Okay. But, uh, but the hits are still solid. Yes. You know, they really are. So they're undeniable. So um, Sometimes the journey is more fun than the destination. Huh? <laughs> well, it's much more fun to take a journey with someone who's uh, passionate about the band and uh, you get to sit across from and chat about uh, nerd stuff and whatever. So right. thanks, thanks for you know, coming to town and thanks for, thanks for doing this and we'll do it again. Awesome, yeah. Can't I look wait. forward to seeing uh, what we bring and do next or what you bring to the table topic wise. So uh, where can we find, and I have a play, I'm going to, my play out song, our play out song, yes. it's just going to be Don't Fear the Reaper from Some Enchanted Evening. Perfect. Just, but uh, where can we find you on social media? Where are you, what's your Twitter handle? Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, so my personal Twitter handle is the Nate Zone. That's across all social media. Okay. Um, Instagram, everything. Instagram, whatever. Yeah. I mean, leave me alone on Facebook. I, unless you're my mom or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> And also, I am the co-host of a podcast yes. myself uh, called Satan and Rainbows. Um, that's all about, it's very niche, but it's all about heavy metal and prog rock. And we, we take turns talking about either one of those um, on different seasons. And do you have a Twitter handle for that? Yes, that one is at uh, Satan Rainbow Pod. I don't think I'm following that. Well, Kyle is. <laughs> Kyle's very good with the social media. Yeah, I, I don't know. We, I mean, we really get my uh, my co-host Jeff and I get like really down to the nitty gritty when we talk about those types of uh, uh, those types of bands. We we go back and forth between metal. My first season was all about uh, Judas Priest, and then we did um, Gentle Giant for season two. Then we did uh, Testament, a thrash metal band, for season three. Uh, now we're doing. I, I think we'll be done by the time this comes out. But right now we're doing. Um, uh, renaissance a symphonic rock band that's kind of proggy for season four and i've started to actually get on some um media lists from some uh smaller record oh that's good shout out stuff so uh i i i'm not 100 percent sure if i can if i can say what i'm going to be covering later this month but um keep an eye out because we'll be doing we'll be it's i'm really committed to 
like smaller, lesser known artists who are up and coming, mm-hmm. getting getting reviewed and talked about on our show. So I've got some stuff coming up for that that I'm really excited getting, for everybody. Getting to hear. free stuff is cool. Yeah, I see you're followed by uh, Bagford and um, oh sure, Josh Scott Fitzgerald. His podcast is following you, and now I am. So and I'll and I'll when I get home and I'm on my computer, I'll have Rock Solid follow you too. I can't believe that we're not. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. No problem. Uh, yeah, we've got, we have some very loyal listeners who came to us because of uh, the last time I was on the show. So um, that's been great. And of course, you know, Michael Bagford's a super fan and uh, Dave Finn is, is great too. So we've, we've got some, some very loyal uh, crossover listeners for and, sure. And you're not going to be here tomorrow. When do you leave this tomorrow? Is, this is unfortunate. Yeah, I Because David my... Finn's going to be at my house. I tell him I miss him, uh, <laughs> even though we've never met before. Tell yeah. him I, I'm, I'm sorry I missed him. I, I really wanted to. It just ended up being a thing where I'd already sort of yeah. booked a hard out uh, tomorrow morning. So I'm pretty much just going to get up, more or less crack it on, get over to Burbank and get out of here. Yeah, I mean, it's not worth changing your chick- ticket for a hamburger. I looked into it, but it didn't. <laughs> Wasn't the, the price didn't quite work not out. not cost yeah. effective. But uh, next time, yeah. next time we'll get some food. But um, well, thank you for being here. We are at Rock Solid Show. I am at Pat underscore Francis. Kyle is at Kyle Dotson Funny. Go to rocksolidpodcast.com for everything, T-shirts, all the episodes. Uh, also, a uh, link there for Patreon if you want to do that. Be more than happy to uh, have you because I really do put all, uh, I, really, I really take the Patreon seriously. Yes. I know some people, some of my friends that have podcasts, and they're like, oh, I don't even, I, I barely do the rewards. I'm like, how could you not do it? That's right. I would never not do it. Oh, I'll, so anyway, I, yeah, I'll just say as a, a, a Patreon uh, or a patron on Patreon, Patreon yeah. yeah, I have felt like v- very satisfied with all the content that you've got. I've won stuff in the giveaways. I've gotten, great. To, you know, I've gotten to see a lot of the great little behind the scenes stuff that you do. So I think you're doing a great cool. job. And Thank it's you. Well Thank you. It. Yeah, I do. I, you know, uh, I won't get, go to the tears. You'll see. But uh, but five dollars ASAP club. People will be hearing this weeks and weeks and weeks before it drops because uh this is literally, I think this is my 10, I have 10 episodes in the can right yeah. now. Oh yeah. So it's, uh, but ASAP club, they've had all those. And, uh, and for two bucks a month, you get to be in all the, uh, all the giveaways. And I have so much stuff to give away. I have like stacks and stacks of stuff at the house right now. Ooh. So I know. So, uh, that's it. That's our show. We're going to close it out with a live version of don't fear the reaper, which comes, as I said earlier from some enchanted evening. So thank you, Nate. Safe travels, and we'll see you soon. Bye.